What's up my fellow poker enthusiasts, it's Renee aka The Wacko here and together with my co-host Adam Carmichael we present to you the Mechanics of Poker podcast. In this podcast we deconstruct high stakes poker players figuring out what it is about them, how they think, what they do that makes them so successful with an extra focus on the obstacles they faced and the skills they had to develop to surpass them. Over the years, me and Adam have gained a lot of experience in both reaching high stakes poker ourselves and teaching other players to do the same. We have bundled all this knowledge together in our coaching program, The Mechanics of Poker, which is the most complete poker coaching product on the market. If you want to have a chance to work with me and Adam so you can get unstuck and make more progress in your poker career, go over to mechanicsofpoker.com to apply. But without further ado, let's learn from another high stakes player's journey in today's episode. Welcome back everyone to another episode of the Mechanics of Poker podcast. Today we will be chatting with Matt Marinelli, who is one of the biggest online cash game winners of the United States. He is a legend on the Ignition streets, but has more recently also introduced himself in global pools like ACR, on which he has continued to crush the games. Playing competitive games was nothing new for Matt. When he was younger, he competed in gaming tournaments, playing Halo and Call of Duty. He later developed a passion for filmmaking and turned that into a career, which he later abandoned to play poker full-time. As soon as he dedicated himself full-time to poker, he rose through the ranks very quickly, going from 100NL to 1KNL in only six months, and within two years was competing with the very best over at 2550. As always, we are joined by my co-host, co-mechanics of poker coach, Adam. Adam, what are you personally most curious for with today's guests? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. We have a detailed questionnaire that we send our guests. And from that, I've wrote down five words that I'm looking forward to digging into deeper. First is fearless. Second, grit. Michael Jordan, detachment, and identity. So they're the main topics from a mindset perspective that I'm really curious to learn more. Hopefully by the end of this podcast, we've got some good things in all these, those areas. Yeah, looking forward to diving into Matt's journey. Before we start, I'd like to give a big shout out to the sponsor of the pod, GTO Wizard. Take your game to the next level with GTO Wizard. Practice against GTO on all your devices. Study any situation from pre-flop to river, we've got it all. Upload your hand histories to uncover your biggest leaks. We have hundreds of hours of coaching from top pros, cutting-edge theory articles, and custom study plans to help guide your poker journey. GTO Wizard, the number one app for poker players. So sign up to GTO Wizard using the link below, gtowizard.com slash mechanics. Get 10% off your first month and join the weekly coaching webinars of which one per month is with me. Looking forward on educating you there. Also, at the end of the podcast, leave your main takeaways down below and get a chance to win a free one month to GTO Wizard. We will pick out one of the comments and you can win a one month free license to GTO Wizard. Without further ado, let's talk to Matt. All right, we're here today with Matt Martinelli. Matt, welcome to the pod. Hey, thank you for having me. Well, let's start off at the beginning of when your poker career 
really started off. I know you got into touch with poker. I think it was in the Jamie Gold era. That's, I think, when you first got in touch with the game, you thought it was cool. You started to play some poker on the side, but was mainly focused on your education. Later pursued a career in filmmaking. However, after a while, you realized you were no longer happy with where the filmmaking career was going. And you decided to pursue poker full-time instead. I was wondering, did you already have a lot of experience playing prior to this decision? And why did you think becoming a professional poker player was the way forward for you? Um, a little bit, yeah, I did have experience. But I think um, if I were to give someone credit, it would be Nick Howard and his uh, just kind of his social media presence at the time really uh, inspired me to kind of give it a shot. What was it about uh, the the social media presence of Nick that made you believe that, you know, be becoming a professional poker player was an option for you? Well, first of all, he has a cult following. So, of course, I just got absorbed. In. <laughs> no, uh, you know, I think, for, I mean, first of all, he did a great job of just marketing himself because he was kind of everywhere. He had this really famous Run at Once blog at the time. He had a Twitch stream, YouTube channel, and I think, I mean, what made it so accessible is that it was also free. So I could watch all the, he had tons and tons of YouTube videos that I would watch. And uh, I just thought the way that he spoke about the game was incredibly interesting and it sort of sucked me in. And the other part of it too, is that, you know, he was an, he is an American, me being an American, and you know, we're going to, um, I'm just going to relate to him more. And he was kind of posting these graphs where he was winning like a crazy amount on, I guess, Bodog at five ten and ten twenty, and thinking like, oh my god, like people can win at like ten big blinds for one hundred at five ten and above on, on sites that I could play on if I played poker. That sounds uh, sounds pretty interesting. So, just kind of hooked me in. Now, obviously, you know that's uh, that was I think Nick's result or maybe some of the students' result. Where did the belief come from that you would be able to do that yourself as well? Well, I didn't know for sure before I started. I I think um, when I decided I was going to apply or something, I had to put in a sample at like 25 and L. And I was incredibly driven. I can't even believe I was putting in this many hours. I was just like pumping in volume at 25 and L just to like prove I can beat the game, I can win, do all this stuff, and to have like an impressive sample to send in when I was going to apply. And I was kind of using his free content to the best of my ability, and it seemed like it was working pretty well. So that gave me an initial inkling or feeling that it could work out, but you don't really know that you can do it until uh, you actually do it. Yeah, there's always like a certain amount of fear that's involved. I We usually ask people to ask to fill in a questionnaire in that you... You mentioned that you are not necessarily a gambler. You like to plan ahead. You like to play things safe. What were some of the things you took in consideration in regards to, I think, risk management, maybe we could call it? Did you have like <laughs> a backup plan going in? What were like some of the considerations you took before turning pro? I'm sure there are some listeners here that might be in the same point of their career where they're considering maybe going pro. What are some of the things you took in consideration or what are some of the things you think people should take in consideration before they actually turn pro? Sure. So I think I was able to kind of maintain this combination of taking a leap of faith with poker, but also trying to be reasonable in how much, how much risk I was taking on. 
-hmm. So in taking the leap of faith, I mean, when I actually applied for Poker Detox, I told them that I would be the number one player that they ever had. And that turned out to be true um, by a lot. Um, so I wasn't afraid to advocate for myself or believe in myself. Um, and it's, it's sort of this drive that uh, still, <laughs> it helps me quite a lot today. But I didn't just completely throw my entire life into playing poker. I was still doing film and video stuff. Basically, in, in the entire time when I started out playing 100 NL on stake up to playing 510, I was still working part time as mm. basically a wedding videographer um, and also doing some small time commercials. I don't even know if they knew I was doing it. <laughs> I mean, I was lapping everyone and I was actually working a part time job. But um, I was kind of waiting to, I think once I got to the point where I was kind of basically crushing 2 5, that's when I sort of knew that I could start transitioning to being able to play poker full time and that basically this had worked what were some of your expectations starting out did you set like certain goals for yourself like oh if i don't reach x before this then i'll go back to filmmaking or were you basically all in well i never thought that i wouldn't succeed i just assumed that i would be number one so i didn't really think too much about that so it, it, there's a, I don't know, it's a, I guess it could be tough to explain if I really thought that I was going to be number one, then why not just quit your job? Well, I don't know. I guess it's just kind of being of two minds, but um, I definitely always thought that I was going to succeed. And I think the main goal, I guess, when I started with Poker Detox, especially because this was the maximum in the contract was to get to 510 and to be making some sort of six figure salary. You mentioned you mentioned detox. So what was the reason you decided to reach out to coaching straight straight away when you went full time? Like I know a lot of players, you know, they first start to try to figure it out themselves, and it takes a very long time of pain and struggle before they actually reach out to help. Why did you think it was a good decision to straight away jump into? I think it's a CFP program. You know, people use it and are like, yeah, I have to give away what uh, all your profit. <laughs> You know, yeah. I want to make money now. Well, it's kind of funny. I, I mean, there are certain things like, I guess, whenever I played poker before, it was just for micro stakes. And as it turned out, I didn't become sauce one, two, three or whatever, just go straight to nosebleed. So I didn't see any sort of complete ascension. So I was kind of partially being realistic about what I would be able to self-generate. Um, another part of it, too, is because I went to school and got an education, I mean, I see value in getting some type of education in the United States. I mean, people would spend easily six figures um, to go to university to get any real job where you expect to make money. And yet with poker, sometimes it's hard to get people to spend even a thousand dollars on poker coaching. So it's, and maybe in the United States, it's not even that shocking to think that you're going to pay to get some sort of training, but I felt like it would help speed up the entire process much uh, by quite a lot. And it, did basically do that. Have you was poker the first thing in which you seeked out for coaches to basically speed up the learning process, or have you done it in the past as well, maybe with other things? Um, I wouldn't necessarily call it coaching, but I could see even because I was a wedding videographer. Um, one thing that it's more of like an apprenticeship where I was working as like an assistant videographer to someone that. I really respected and thought highly of. And I could see how much more quickly I was able to just learn the ropes by watching them and then move forward with my own thing, as opposed to if I just kind of went in with no prior knowledge. Um, and so just kind of seeing 
you know, maybe if you don't even strictly think about a coaching for profit as coaching, but you see it as an apprenticeship, um, that could maybe help frame it a little bit better, but you're just trying to glean knowledge from people that are more experienced from you. Yeah. And it makes, it makes a lot of sense. And probably going forward or in other, in other endeavors that you look at or something that you want to get better and probably looking for people who have showed that they're very good at that and trying to have them teach you to speed up the learning curve. This is probably like the first thing that comes to your mind now when you try to get better in something, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I have exactly the same. It's interesting that indeed in poker, people people are not really willing to invest in their career, even though if you look at the returns, the expected salary that you could get compared to like other jobs where people might invest, like you said, six figures, it's really weird that people are a bit more averse towards investing. Maybe because the education market is more organized, legalized, and the coaching <laughs> market is maybe a little bit more all over the place. I think coming so. back to that, like there, there's indeed there is a lot of coaching material, for example, out there. How you already mentioned you really aligned with Nick's philosophy. How does one find a good coach that works for him? Well, I think, I mean, the most important thing that you have to do is find someone that resonates with you. And most likely the best way that you can do that is through finding the free content, um, going on YouTube, Twitter, if they have a blog, if they're on run at once, if whatever they might have, that would be considered free content. I think you should, I mean, most credible people that are coaches have something out there uh, that is free. And if they don't have something free, maybe you could find something that's pretty low cost to get some sort of introduction. Um, I usually expect, like I'll give just Poker Detox as an example, even though I'm not involved with it in any way. Um, they have like a 30-day training camp that can get you like a sense of what it might be if you wanted to do the uh, coaching for profit overall. So I, I think the most important thing, though, is to find someone that really resonates with you. I'd rather find a coach that I resonated more that was, you know, beating 2-5 than someone that maybe had more credentials, was playing 5-10, but I don't think I meshed as well with them. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. I've, I've hung out with quite a lot of very good players, and some players who are very good, when I ask them to explain something, they're very bad. And the other way around as well, like someone who might be less of a good player in terms of in terms of result, he might be able to explain things way better. I think it's also, it's a different quality. Like, I think what some people know off-game and what they can consistently apply in-game, that gap is just so small. And therefore, you know, they're very good crushers. And other games might have sort of the same knowledge off-game to a certain degree, but then in-game, I don't know, maybe, maybe like there's some mental game issues going on, maybe some performance issues, that it doesn't really come out in the same way. But then as a coach, actually, for that person... Uh, I might really re resonate with him. Um, you've also done some coaching yourself. What, in your opinion, makes a good coach? And you also have a lot of experience getting coached. What, in your opinion, makes a good coach? Well, I mean, you have to take it seriously. It's a big problem that I think um, a lot of online poker players might have is that they just could see it as some sort of variance-free income that they just sort of throw in some hours, but they're not really thinking about coaching as a specific skill. And it's something that you have to cultivate um, and think about deliberately, because if, you know, if you just phone it in, you're really not helping people as much as you could be. And the reason that people don't do that as much is because if you're a professional poker player, you, are, you like playing poker. You don't necessarily want to teach people or sit around and talk to people or uh, it's not necessarily why you got into it. So I think just, 
I mean, first of all, just being very committed to coaching specifically is a, is a big part of it, I think. Yeah, I can definitely speak from experience in my career. I used to only play and then actually for, I think, about two years, I only coached because I kind of ran into this same problem. If you look at the amount of time, and I think maybe a lot of coaches have this, they're like, well, my EV in playing is this high, so I want to coach, but I don't want to put in too much time into the coaching because that will be too expensive. And then <laughs> they'll just find a way that's like low, low time invest. And I found that when I started to do coaching, I wanted to take it as serious as I was playing poker. And then I found the two very hard to combine, especially if you want to do both at a very high level. Nowadays, I combine it a bit, a little bit more. And yeah, you have to accept that both might not be at the highest level. I do definitely notice if I put more time in one, the other suffers. If I put more time in the other, the other one suffers. So you're, it's, it's almost yeah. like, you know, you're always trying to keep both above, <clears throat> above water, so to speak. Um, I wanted to touch on a point that I think you mentioned and I also read in your blog. So I'll quote, because you mentioned that your real career will begin when you look in the mirror and say, I will do this with real conviction. I don't give a fuck what I have to go through. I'm going to thrive. How do you build that conviction and confidence in yourself that you can actually do this? And what daily behaviors did you implement to enforce this sort of idea? <laughs> Sounds like something I'd say, especially because I'm cursing. So <laughs> it sounds pretty. You're, you're free yeah. to curse as much as you want on the podcast. Oh, always. fuck yeah. <laughs> um, it's a hard thing to really know how to, to teach to have this sort of kind of fiery belief in yourself. But I think the first step, um, I think that I was maybe even laying out in that post is, I think it was, first of all, just stop listening to any sort of toxic social media. I mean, starting with the ideas that are even kind of coming into your head is that most people let's say you go on Twitter or like two plus two or something, you, the most common thing you'd hear is that poker is dead or something, or that the game is too hard or, or something like that. But we'll just say poker is dead. But I mean, to some extent, that's kind of what people might want you to believe because they're failing. <laughs> These are usually people that are kind of micro stakes losers that are not succeeding in poker. And so the idea that uh, the sky is falling, the game is dead. That's kind of what needs to be true in order to justify their own mediocrity. So don't fucking listen to them. You know, if you, there's plenty of money to be made in this game for anyone that chooses to be great at it. So just be great. Put, surround yourself with people that can actually, that are also proactive, they're working hard to improve themselves, to um, improve their game that kind of have a, they don't have a scarcity mindset like other people. Um, they're, I guess just putting it simply, it's just finding your tribe. And I think that's what really was a great stepping stone for me in finding a coaching for profit with people that I was aligned with is that I just kind of had this great community where we could all kind of uh, build together for that time in our life. Um, and I think if you are able to, I guess, kind of stay away from the negativity and just stay, kind of have your tribe working together with people, um, this, I don't know, this sort of attitude that you feel like you can do this, that's, I think that's going to kind of naturally develop over time. So I, I really, I'm a big time believer in you are the sum of, you know, whatever the five people that you spend the most time around. And I think that's another layer of why I tend to really recommend that people invest, you know, not just in coaching, really thinking about in terms of a relationship and building relationships with people that have already done what you want to do. Um, cause it, it pays off in dividends in ways that you, you wouldn't even anticipate, uh, when you're, when you're first starting out. 
I'm sure a lot of people would love to hang out with a lot of very smart poker players, but how does one find its tribe? Well, I think one thing if you're starting out in micro stakes, uh, the problem is like why you can't invest $100,000 into your education is because you can't get out a student loan for poker, right? <laughs> it's just not seen as legitimate. So the best thing that you have to offer if you have no money is your future profits. That's why coaching for profit is a logical starting place for someone that is playing micro stakes. They're, you know, a, a basically a, someone with a dream. Um, and so that's why, um, you know, it, it, publicly something like CFPs can get a lot of flack um, and sometimes justifiably so. I mean, you even mentioned it in the, be I think in the beginning of like people, um, you know, so why do I have to give away all my profits? This is BS or whatever, but guess what? If you don't have any money, you have nothing to offer anyone. So this is your best opportunity. Yeah, and if you have um, no profits otherwise, then it's better to give half of something that you actually have than giving nothing of break even. <laughs> exactly. So I, I would say it's probably your best route to go that direction. And I think it makes the most sense for people that have been stuck. Let's say if you're stuck at micro stakes or small stakes for a long period of time, let's say you're playing for like a year and you haven't moved up in stakes. I think you need to be willing to try something new and break out of whatever paradigm you're in. Because if you're just trying to brute force it, doing the same things that you've been doing, um, it's probably not going to be enough. And I mean, even like, let's say part of your routine might be to have a run at one subscription. Um, now this can be great, but the thing is that it's also like very impersonal in a way. You're just kind of getting into some big tub of videos. There's no personal connection. There's not, um, it's not much of a guided lesson plan, we'll say, or there's no cohesive vision to uh, run at once coaching. Whereas if you find a specific coach, not only can you build a relationship with them, but they also typically will offer a particular cohesive perspective on the game. Like someone might be more of a theoretically oriented coach. Someone might be a more of a data-driven coach or a simplified strategy coach or something, some blend in between. And when, it, when I'm talking about finding someone that you feel like you um, like you really mesh with, I think usually their uh, cohesive idea about the game will be very appealing to you. Yeah, because there's, you know, people like to like to hear that there's one way. But for example, also in the questionnaires that we ask people to fill out for the podcast, we have many successful guests on. Like what they fill in in terms of how they approach strategy, for example, when we give them two options, it's very different for players. One likes to simplify a lot. One uses like a complex type of arsenal of things. Also, if you if you analyze games at the highest stakes to all winners and you just take a random note, there's different strategical approaches. So guess what? There is no one one way. And I indeed believe that like some ways might resonate more with you and you find that more intuitive and therefore you can strive in that way of approaching poker. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. And it's going to be more fun. You'll have a lot less resistance when they're teaching you something. It's going to work so much better if you're already on board with what they're saying. Because if you're not really a theoretically oriented person and they're giving you tons of like PO solver outputs, you're just going to be fighting the entire way. And it's probably not going to work out in the long haul. I was thinking about also what you said about the community. Because in your in, in your quote, it did say like things will get tough. So it's not like you're delusional and thinking that, you know, I'm just going to rise to the top and there will be no struggles, but you expect struggles and 
you think it's normal and therefore, yeah, it's just part of the learning process where I think at a whole, people are break even for a long time maybe. And then they go to the general community. Well, who's also break even or losing. And they are like, yeah, you know, variance is tough. Uh, you know, you get these kind of things usually pointing outwards and what you have to do is start to point inwards and maybe think, well, maybe I'm the problem or maybe I should mix something up. You already mentioned like run at once videos. It's also like how you use things. You can say like, yeah, well, I also work with data. Yeah, I also work with solvers. Yeah, I also watch run at once. But how are you using these tools, right? I like to make the comparison. You can put me in the nicest kitchen with very good ingredients, but yeah, I still don't know how to cook. Like I have the same tools to my disposal, but I don't know how to use them like a professional chef, right? So it's also how how you're watching these run at once videos. Are you just, you know, do you have a bag of potato chips lying on the couch and just, you know, using it more as like sort of a Netflix or are you actively trying to think like, hmm, why, why would he do that? Or what's his strategic approach? Or maybe try to reach out to him. People also love to take, right? They... They want to, for example, message you or they want to message me, even though they're at maybe it's 50 and 100 and L. And they ask, ask, ask. And instead of like, hey, Matt, how could I maybe help you? You know, what could I, what could, maybe I could start running some sims for you that, that you don't want to do yourself. And, you know, when I provide them, maybe I can ask you a question for every sim that I deliver. For example, you know, find ways that you can actually add value to the person's life and you'll be happy to, to give value back. I see that actually in, in my own coaching as well, the people who, reach out to me and provide me with cool, cool poker solutions and want to talk about it, I'll, I'll happily respond. I'll happily jump on a call with you, discuss. No, no problem whatsoever. Um, you, so you, you joined Detox. And I was wondering, after getting coaching, what did you realize was the biggest mistake you were making in your approach to poker? before that. Um, what did I learn from poker detox? Yeah. So I assume they explained you a different way of looking at the game than prior. What was uh, like, yeah, yeah. in your opinion, your biggest mistake that you were making in your approach to playing poker? Well, I think, you know, Nick was really big on simplified strategies and trying to make the game as simple as possible. And so I think when this was probably like 2018 or something, cause I know that's when I started, he was, I think he was just kind of looking at showdowns from the, from Bodog or whatever the hell it is, and where they show revealed hold cards after 24 hours, so you can get a sense of what people actually had. And I think he was kind of developing different intuitive frameworks for how to play the game. Like, I don't know, maybe certain actions might be underbluffed or overbluffed, or certain things might be overfolded or underfolded, and just kind of giving you basic steps of how to play the game. I mean, I mean, one of them, which is very basic and obvious now is in, on a variety of textures, just see betting your entire range for one third or whatever, which a lot of people might do depending on the texture now. But it wasn't as common back then where maybe before I would have been thinking like, okay, I'm on the flop, let's have five different sizes and think about how to memorize that. And so a lot of it was moving away from any attempt at some kind of GTO memorization and moving towards uh, different simplified strategies that he was kind of coming up with. But still, to a certain degree, I guess, play GTO only in a more set and simplified framework? Um, I wouldn't really consider anything that Nick was doing at that time to be that steeped in GTO. <laughs> I mean, 
I just, I don't think that's what was being studied at that time. I think he was almost kind of reacting against it um, because I, I think, I mean, he'll, he can tell his own story, but uh, he, I think he had kind of gone down the GTO rabbit hole whenever, you know, PO Solver came out like 2015, 2016, and uh, basically found it sort of futile. And so he was sort of rubber banding going in the other direction of not wanting to use that tool as often. Um, so I don't think he would have even opened up PO Solver in like 2018. <laughs> um, it's so. interesting. Like I, I usually compare it or I give the example when you are more GTO minded, you think way more in terms of, oh, I must do this or I have to do that. Whereas if you kind of break free from the model, you're actually starting to think yourself, can I? I think that's a way better way of looking at the game because can I might still lead to must I, it might lead to the same action, but at least it offers flexibility. Take for example, river decision. Can I profitably call her with my bluff catcher? That's a different ask question to ask yourself. than must I call her because must I call here is based on the assumption that you need to reach, for example, a certain defend frequency because else you get exploited, blah, 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 blah. Whereas can yeah. I call here is as simple as well. Is the guy bluffing enough? And therefore, I can call or I should always fold. Obviously, you can ask yourself, well, is there long-term consequences to overfolding versus this specific player, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, most people that are listening, I think asking, already starting with a different <clears throat> question, sends your brain in a different direction, which in my opinion will lead you to make better decisions. Um, right, because you understand the game at a deeper level at that point, because you're thinking about what do my decisions depend on. Yeah, exactly, because... Yeah, so so obviously, you know, you've maybe looked at the solver, you understand it, but then you have to, I feel like at some point, you know, a solver can really help you. And then at some point you sort of surpass the solver again, or at least, you know, <laughs> you're not trying to trying to follow it. If you've never watched the solver, there's still a lot to learn. If you're only in solvers at some point, I feel like it's also time sort of to move on in a certain way, if, if you understand what I mean. Kind of, mm -hmm. This is a bit harder to explain, sorry for the audience, uh, uh, but, but I hope that makes sense. Would you be able to describe how your experience playing poker changed after after yeah receiving this knowledge um let me see yeah let me think for a second how did it change after i started basically embracing the simplified well i mean in a lot of ways i, I guess it kind of reduced to the decision fatigue of overthinking every single decision i felt like i was taking like some sort of really intense exam anytime i tried to play poker initially um, but once I started getting more of the simplified strategy, it seemed, just seemed like a lot more was taken care of for me, um, which made playing a lot easier, uh, first of all. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I was just winning so much that it just seemed like it was kind of, um, the fact that I guess I was winning so much validated the perspective that I guess I didn't, I don't really need to think that hard about GTO or uh, go that deep into it, at least not as much as I thought I did. Um, so I guess in, at that point in my career at that time, I mean, now I'm extremely, like, I think I came more full circle, um, ultimately, you know, much more theoretically oriented now, but it was definitely an interest. I wouldn't be the player that I was, that I am now, if it wasn't for going through this whole thing that, um, really opened my eyes to playing in a totally different way because it was very counterintuitive. Why was it so... I mean, I'll give you, because, I'll because, give you because you crazy stuff. That poker was more complex. It could it couldn't be this quote quote simple. I'm, I'll give you an example. Um, and this wasn't even like I don't think I don't know if Nick told us to do this or if I just decided to do this on my own. But this is just an example of 
how how you could play the game if you wanted to. So I got to 500 Zoom um, on Ignition Poker, and I just decided that I think it would be better if I just never called preflop, and I only three bet um, or folded, even out of the big blind. And my reasoning for this is that first of all, I'm better than everyone post flop, and so I'd rather play a big a big pot than a small pot. And then the second thing is that because it's anonymous and because it's uh, Zoom, I don't know who a fish is or a recreational player. And so I always want to play a bigger pot against recreational players if possible. So just even on the possibility that I'm up against a recreational player, I think it's better to just three bet. And also I had this insanely high RFI. So long story short, I think my, my stats were like 33-32 with a 30% three bet. Um, and I, I think I wanted like 11.5 BBs adjusted at 500 <laughs> ignition. Um, it was probably the most insane way you could possibly play poker and must have been exploitable for like 30 big points for 100 or something. And yet I just kind of crushed the game regardless. And so that definitely gave me some, I <laughs> gave me some confidence to, uh, just, I don't know, just playing like that is so bizarre and making it work. It, uh, it was very, very interesting to say the least. Yeah, I think an experience like that kind of opens up your brain to the question like, oh, well, if this is possible, what else is possible? Exactly. Right? Yeah. So it it opens up your brain to think more creatively about strategy. I would say actually it also takes maybe an anonymous, like I've never had any experience playing on anonymous pools, but maybe because it requires a lot of confidence to use a strategy that's against what the majority is doing, because basically you're saying that the majority sucks and you know it yeah. better but especially yeah, the basically. higher levels you get you're like hey oh your high stakes you guys all do this fuck that i'm gonna do this this other thing instead it takes balls yes i'm a bold player <laughs> you're, you're you're definitely a bold player but like i said i can imagine that on an anonymous game um there's obviously like some different dynamics because you don't have to think about well okay i'm gonna have a 30 percent three bet think in a game where people might track your stats that at some point yeah. they're like, wait, this guy is 30% three bet. <laughs> like what the hell is going on? So in your experience, because I know you also play non-anonymous games, what are like some of the adjustments you've made going from anonymous to, to anonymous? And what are in general for people maybe listening who are maybe hopping between the two or only play one or decide to switch to the other? What are some of the things that they have to take in consideration? The fact that it's anonymous versus not anonymous. Yeah, um, I actually just enjoy playing regular games way more. I don't really like anonymous. I it makes me feel like I enjoy actually playing playing against specific people um, and getting reads on them and kind of looking at their stats and hand to note after I get a substantial like stamp sample on them. And so I do spend a lot of time thinking about how to play against specific people, which would make it kind of hard for someone to actually easily i mean everyone's exploitable but it'd be harder for someone to counter me in a blanket way because i just sort of intuitively play against everyone at least a little bit differently um so i get i get a lot of value out of kind of coming up with specific dynamics that i want to play with with specific people and i guess your game nowadays when you switch to normal normal tables from what you mentioned you play a bit more within within a gto framework so probably your stats are less extreme. So therefore, for example, because I know that like uh, some people who were used to play anonymous, they hop, for example, to stars. 
And, you know, they learned in detox that if someone checks back, you should step. So they run around with like an 80% probe or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, people, people yeah. will, will pick up and then, then you have a problem sort of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of a big time jump because this, I think when I was doing that, it probably would have been like early 2019. So that was a while ago. So I don't play anything even remotely close to that now. It's a lot. It's significantly closer to playing closer to GTO with um, maybe trying to figure out how I want to try to exploit specific players. Um, so I think I kind of came full. I mean, I'm also like my main game is 2550 on ACR. So it's, you know, it's a lot different, you know, substantially different than Ignition Poker. But would you say like the, the main foundation of the simplification remained, but you... You keep your frequencies a bit more in control compared to the past. Would that be a good description? Yeah, I mean, there's things that I could expand upon more. I think there's a lot of, like, I'm still definitely a player that comes from this sort of mindset of keeping things simplified and coming up with ways to have simplified strategies that are also very close to GTO. And I'm also still just a very, like, I, I mean, I don't know what my opponents think of me, but I'm pretty fearless and aggressive player. Um, and that just kind of comes from just being the type of person that would be willing to three bet 30% at 500 zoom. You're, yeah, you're going to be an interesting character once you get to nosebleeds. You ended up being, uh, one of the most successful students while many others of you who were in the same CFP, they received the same sort of coaching. They actually failed. So what do you think sets you apart and in your observation, why did others fail despite being handed the same content? Are you smarter than them or more talented than them? Or what was the difference? Well, I mean, I have no idea if I'm smarter or more talented. I, I wouldn't really think so, but I can't really control that. I can only control, you know, what I do. And so I know, I mean, I when I just started uh, the, my contract with Poker Detox, I just hit the ground running and I was just working as hard as I possibly could. And it was really important for me to, treat poker professionally and not to treat it like what I worry maybe a lot of people do is treating it like it's a video game. Um, you were kind of mentioning before, like, how are you watching the run of once videos? How are you doing this? Are you, are you eating potato chips and treating it like Netflix? Um, I think part of the problem is that people that want to play online poker, there's a lot of overlap between being like a gamer. So they're, they're kind of approaching it almost like they would treat, you know, I don't know, like playing Dota or some other thing of just like, I'm going to log on, you know, I'm going to just put in my time. I'm not going to think that hard about it. You just kind of put in your hours and hope that you just get better. Whereas something like poker, it's a lot more important that you, that you use basically something called deliberate practice, which is something that I talked uh, quite a lot about when I was a, a coach, probably, it, probably we're sick of hearing it, deliberate practice, but I st still just talked about it all the time. Um, I, I could talk about deliberate practice, I guess. I didn't go into that. Um, basically, deliberate practice. I, I guess I read about it in Angela Duckworth's book called Grit. And so deliberate practice is a really focused, conscientious, and effortful form of practice. And it's usually not very fun in a lot of ways, where you're, you're focusing on improving your specific weaknesses. Um, it takes a, a ton of attention, and a lot of times it's just really boring. So I guess I'll give an example that she used in her book. Um, she was 
it was some, I don't know, like experiment or something that was tracking young people that were in a spelling bee. And they went to see how do these kids, and then like in a national spelling bee competition, and like how do these kids perform in the in the contest and also how did they study? And there are different ways that you might study for it, but the kids that let's say they tried, they studied by just playing Scrabble, right? Like a fun game. Those kids didn't do well in the contest. If anything, that's more of a negative predictor that they're going to do poorly in this contest. The kids that, well, maybe they took, they, they quizzed themselves, like just kind of general quizzes, or maybe they went online and had like a couple flashcards here and there. They started to do better. It's a little bit more focused and a little bit more focusing on your weaknesses, but it's not that specific. It's a bit more general. But then the kids that do the best in the competition are the kids that are really, it's a solitary work of like, you're literally like reading through the dictionary and thinking, okay, what's the Latin root of this, that, or the other, you know, what is this, you know? And then ultimately what happens is that deliberate practice is the best predictor for performance. And the reason that it's so hard to do this is because you get into poker because you like to play poker. You don't like to, you're probably not an academic person. You don't want to sit down and do boring shit and think really hard about your weaknesses. I mean, I've had to teach myself how to use so many different softwares and kind of and like using hand to note feels like you're almost like coding things line by line. And it's just, you're typing things into a spreadsheet. It's boring. And it's boring to do that every single day and to approach it with a very serious level of consistency. I mean, I can say in all seriousness, I've reviewed every six big blind pot or higher um, in the past couple of years, but definitely over the past year without me. So if you played me on ACR and we played a hand that was that I won or lost over six big blinds, I reviewed it. So, um, and I used GTO wizard all the time to help me do that, but I have a very specific and regimented form of studying and I take my career incredibly seriously. All right. So if I can, if I understood correctly, the main difference was that they were not deliberate about the actions they were taking. They weren't opening solver with a deliberate thought in mind of like, I have these weaknesses and I'm going to, for example, now use the solver to figure out how to improve on my weaknesses. Like they would just open a hand and check the solver. Did I play my hand correctly? And that's it, basically. And if they would watch a run at once video, again, they're more of the potato chip guy instead of, okay, I'm going to watch this video because I'm curious about the thought process because I struggle with this area. So basically you're turning to resources with a deliberate intention in mind of, okay, I need to improve on these weaknesses and I'm going to use this resource now strictly to improve these weaknesses. And probably it's the same with playing, right? You set a certain intention before a session. Like I usually, be before I play, I always open like a little notepad and I'll start right down like, okay, how can this session today improve me as a poker player? What should I be focusing on? So I set a couple of like focus points for myself. And what this does is your, your brain will start to look for situations where you can actually improve as a player. So I'm a very big fan of at least before your session, sit down like, okay, what I'm trying to achieve in this session, how can this session help me in any sort of way? Yeah, I've, yeah, I've done similar things. I mean, if I feel like I have a, a line or a zone that I'm not doing as well in, I might set an intention like, okay, maybe I've been overfolding to half pot, C-bet and two bet pot out of position, like very specific things. So I'm going to focus. If that happens, I'm going to make sure that I'm actually defending properly. 
And I mean, even like, there's a layer of it that is, you have to spend time to even know what your weaknesses are. It's not even enough to just use the tools correctly. Sometimes you have to use the tools to reveal what your weaknesses are. Um, so and it, <laughs> it's, it, there's just a lot of layers to it. It actually makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah, but what you mentioned, like a lot of players go into poker because they don't want, they don't want like a night five job or they don't want to do all these things. And basically now you're saying, yeah, well, in order to become good at poker, you have to treat it like a job. And people are like, yeah, I got into poker because I didn't want to have a job. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, so, if you want to be great, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I've, I, I don't recall who said this on the podcast, but one of our previous guests, I don't recall who, he also said like, well, I'm a professional now, so I'm going to take things professionally, right? They really, at some point it switched. Like I'm no longer an amateur, I'm a professional. And with a professional comes certain standards that you do, right? Like you said, you do, you put in certain work. Uh, or, you know, you plan your schedule, you play certain hours, not like, oh, well, I don't feel like it today, so I don't play. No, you're a professional now, so you're going to put in your hours. Um, so that's kind of, so may maybe, yeah, exactly. Like being, being very deliberate is kind of what then sets you apart. Hi guys, Renee, AKA the Weko here with a quick Mechanics of Poker 2.0 announcement. In our program, you will get access to 80 plus hours of content in which we will explain you all aspects needed in order to become a more successful poker player. Now, one of these, of course, is the technical aspect of the game in which I'll be explaining you all the mechanics behind poker strategies. We'll be talking about GTO, exploitive play with an extra focus on the why behind certain strategies and why the population has certain leaks. And to increase your win rate even further, we've recently added a river bluff and bluff catching section so you can increase your EV when those pots become very big. Our mindset and performance coach Adam Carmichael, he took care of the mental game and performance section of this program in which he will teach you everything you need to know in order to break through limiting beliefs, better handle your emotions, break free from tilt and play your A game more consistently. And last but not least, we've added the management and optimization section in the program in which we will give you various tips and tricks to make it more likely for your poker career to succeed and how to continuously improve as a poker player. Now, on top of that, this concept is continuously evolving based on feedback and suggestions we get from our community. Next to all this content, you will have access to our exclusive Discord community, monthly live Q&A calls, and one-on-one -on -one coaching session in which we are going to be reviewing if you have been implementing the stuff that we teach you in the mechanics of poker correctly. So do you think you have what it takes to master the mechanics of poker? Go over to mechanicsofpoker.com and maybe you will get a chance to work with me and Adam and make more progress in your poker career. But for now, without further ado, let's get back into more goodness in today's episode. Um, Adam, how deliberate were you in your approving? I definitely feel like you probably resonated with Matt in this topic. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. I think deliberate practice is one of those things that we can talk about and it's sometimes hard to understand what it actually means, but generally it's being very intentional about what you're doing, trying to learn in a very uh, coherent way. And it's often doing boring, uh, monotonous stuff that you repeat over and over. And I think it, as we, you've talked about today, a lot of poker players kind of don't get into poker with that mindset. They don't really want to do the hard solver stuff, the hard work. They enjoy the game. It's fun. It's an, this enjoyable thing. And at some point to keep progressing, 
you need to put in the hard stuff in this kind of pursuit of kind of mastery. So yeah, I think I learned this concept from Malcolm Gladwell. He coined the term the 10,000 hour rule, which kind of overlaps with this, this what Matt's been talking about, of you need to put 10,000 hours roughly to kind of concept of deliberate practice, which is this hard work. And you might only do one to three hours a day of this really hard work, it's the tough stuff. Uh, but yeah, that done over time, the kind of good news is almost nobody does it. So the reason Matt is speaking to us today from this high vantage point is because he's done that for a prolonged period of time and most other people haven't. So right now we're talking to you, Matt, as a high stakes player. And I just want to unpack your story to get in here. Obviously you didn't wake up and just start playing high stakes. So I want to unpack your journey and some of the lessons that you've learned that hopefully the audience can resonate with. So uh, I think you mentioned that you uh, made your way from kind of 100 NL to 5K NL in the space of two years, which is rapid. Uh, in that kind of quick journey, with any setbacks or challenges that you uh, can remember to heart that were particularly challenging during that period? Sure. Um, there were there were a couple different, I'm sure, in just those two years. Um, I think probably one of the ones that jumps out the most is me trying to get to 1020 and basically getting crushed over and over again. Um, and I had done so well to start off my contract and you know, I had to add, it wasn't even in my contract to do 1020. I had to like advocate to Nick Howard, like, Hey, you should let me do this. Yada, yada, yada. And he said, okay. And then I just got to meet, I think I like lost, like, I don't even know. I lost 18,000 or something in like a couple of days, just immediately. And so, okay, now I'm in makeup and I have to go back down and I'm grinding it back up. It's taking a while. And then I decided like, okay, I'm going to try 1020 again, lose again, <laughs> and have to go back into makeup. And it was this thing, I think maybe over the course of um, four and a half months where I was in makeup, um, kind of like shot taking 1020 then going back down to 510. And, you know, I'm living in Los Angeles. It's an expensive city. And relatively speaking, I'm still new to solo, just doing poker without any other um, income aside from my wife's income. Um, and so it was just kind of a really difficult time. And also, in some ways a character defining moment because there's this sort of temptation of thinking like, well, I'm already crushing or whatever, 510, I should just stick to playing 510. I shouldn't, because I basically took three different shots at 1020 and I lost about, I think I lost $52,000 playing 1020 over these three shots. Um, and so it's tempting to just say, oh, I'll just play 510. I mean, I don't need, or maybe I can just take a ridiculously long time and just wait till whenever to play 1020. But I think I'm just too much of a competitor to just uh, not continuously just keep trying to do this because over time, I mean, like I started out saying I wanted to be the number one player um, in poker detox. But as time went on, I think it just became that I wanted to be the number one player in online six max. And so the way that you're going to do that is by shot taking, playing against the best players. And I guess yeah, you have to invite a lot of pain. It's going to be a lot of struggle. So um, eventually, I think I tried it. It was my fourth shot that eventually worked. And what ultimately wound up kind of changing my life a little bit is um, the fourth shot, eventually I won $100,000 in one month and at 1020. And uh, yeah, that sort of established me, I guess, as a crusher or whatever. Mm -hmm. So these three challenges, sorry, these three shot takes that failed, so to speak, we were down 52K what made you want to continue? So you've mentioned like you've got this kind of inner drive to be the best, best in detox and the best at your format. But at the same time, there's a lot of kind of 
conflicting kind of results coming back at you, which is going to get you to question things. So uh, first of all, why did you continue to keep going at the 2Ks? And was there any skills that you had to develop over this period that helped you break through to that profitable month? <clears throat> well, I think it did help to, I think after I was in makeup for a while, I needed to kind of take a break from continuously kind of banging my head against the wall in this process of 510 to 1020 and back and forth. So I actually wound up playing on some app games for a little bit, which are, when I think back on it, it's hilarious me playing on these, like these ridiculous, like Chinese apps. Um, but it kind of actually got me to, and it's a little dramatic to say, but like kind of falling in love with the game again, of like learning this different thing. Cause it was such a crazy format where it was like, there's a two blinds and a straddle and an ante, and it's like 60 big blinds deep. And it's, all like it's all written in Chinese so I had to like use Google Translate to like understand what all the buttons did and but it was just kind of like learning a slightly different format on what I was already doing um but wound up ultimately I guess crushing that even though it was pretty I'll say it was very shady and but I got, basically got out of makeup just playing in these apps and then after that I think I kind of just gave me a different perspective I don't think I had any sort of amazing revelation it was just more being able to take a breath from this cycle and um, applying myself to just taking another shot at it um, and in terms of why continue to um, do this I mean it, it's not easy to say it's just that I it's kind of like you are who you choose to be and the person that I want to be is this high stakes crusher because that brings me satisfaction and meaning um, um i think there's there can be you know honestly like a lot of beauty in a in the level of high in the premier performance um in any sport and i like to try to treat poker like a sport and so i think i'm not saying objectively speaking that everyone should try to be the greatest whatever i mean that's just for me what gives me meaning is the pursuit of this greatness so it made sense that if this is the type of person that I want to be and this is where I want to go, I'm going to have to cross this bridge. You mentioned in your questionnaire with us before we jumped on the air that you were pretty fearless during this period. Does this mean that you didn't experience fear or that you had the courage, uh, courage to push past it? And what was your inner kind of self-talk like during these field attempts? Well, of course. I mean, as you are going to know, like it, it is scary. I mean, you're going to be afraid. I mean, I wasn't sure if I would need to start working part time to some extent if I needed to pick up some hours because I wasn't that far removed from working um, a regular job. So I was kind of contemplating what should I be doing? And I certainly didn't want to go back. I didn't want to go backwards. Um, so usually for me, when I get into any sort of downswing, um, my response is to double down and just start I just think of like, all right, I'm digging myself out. I'm just digging. And so I just start working like as hard as possible um, to to basically get myself out of that. Um, I don't, but I don't, I wouldn't say that I'm feeling like actively every day waking up in terror or fear. I think it's more of, you know, and working a regular job is a, is a good motivator for the average poker player of to like, oh, I don't want to do that. So it gives you a reason to uh, get up and work extra hard, I think. Mm. I want to touch on identity now, because you just mentioned a second ago, you are who you choose to be, which I thought was very powerful. And I saw in your blog, you wrote that one of your contributors to your success was, I made great decisions of the person I wanted to be. I think this is really powerful in terms of shaping 
the version of you you want to be going forward. So uh, my question is, what specifically did you decide and how did you make these changes in your life as a result? Well, I just, I think it all kind of revolved around me being as committed as I possibly could be to this goal. And no matter how afraid I was going to be or how hurt I was going to be, I mean, I'm pretty sure I cried at some point from the downswing of just being in makeup for months and months and months. It was just, it was too much emotionally, but I would never let that stop me um, from continuing to pursue what I wanted to do. I wouldn't, I wouldn't let fear, you know, stop me. And it, it's something that I would, you know, maybe something I would impart to people that are playing smaller stakes, um, especially younger people that want to get into the career is understanding that like this game is going to be just a ballroom brawl like from beginning to end like the the problem a little bit is if you if, let's say you look on the look on look on social media or look for different coaching sites and offerings you're going to think that uh, people are winning all the time it's all chip porn it's all like hey look at my graph i played a 20,000 hand sample and won you know whatever amount of money and yeah, it's like it, you kind of only see the winning, but people are not sharing the losing so much. I mean, Adam, there's people that are in the coaching industry that are sharing individual winning days. This is like a slap in the face. I mean, and it's going to give people the wrong idea of just how hard it is. Like it is just a slog from beginning to end. And something that in a lot of ways can relieve my anxieties about when I'm going through them is just reminding myself that it's going to be a ballroom brawl. It's going to be a fight from beginning to end. So you're not as surprised when it happens. Like, yeah, I might sit down and I might lose some five-figure amount today. That's, yeah, that's basically par for the course. That's probably what's going to happen. But that is just a, a part of the process. And so being realistic you know, with yourself and me just telling other, I, it's important for me to tell people like that. I've, I've gone through stretches where I've lost 52,000 high stakes. I went on a hundred thousand dollar downswing. Um, and it is excruciatingly painful. Um, at one point I went to, you know, I brought my wife and dog. We went to Canada and I went to play on GG poker and lost money there. Um, and, I wound up like running really good on ACR and winning money on the trip overall, but I could already play on ACR. I didn't need to travel all this way to go to Canada to play on GG. And it was felt like a failure. Um, now maybe at the end of the year, it was a big success in terms of all this other stuff, but you have to think about it in a really, sometimes it might not even be a year. Sometimes it might need to take two years or however long it's going to take, but you have to just trust deep down that, as hard as it is, I mean, this game cannot keep the good ones down. So if you're one of the good ones, it's not going to keep you down. So just keep fighting. I like that. I like the uh, meat and reality where it is. And it reminds me of a concept by Grant Cardone. He's got like the 10X rules, one of his books. And one of his things is that the goals you're pursuing in life are generally going to be 10X harder to achieve than you initially think. And for some people, that's enough to go, whoa, like that's a lot of extra effort. But I think it's really good to realize that in poker in particular, it's tough. It's going to be like, like you said, a brawl to get to that, to your, the goals. It's going to be a long-term pursuit and it's not going to be linear. And there's going to be moments where you question yourself. You have self-doubt. Almost everyone we spoke to who makes high stakes has low points where they're like, is it going to work for me? Can I figure this out? And I think sometimes realizing it's supposed to be hard. Most people will quit on the pursuit. If you're one of the resilient people who don't, 
you've got a chance to make in it. So uh, I just want to quickly double down on the identity thing that you mentioned before. So uh, you, let's say for yourself in this moment when you're choose, making good choices about the person you want to be, let's say you create a vision of yourself, which is going to be uh, this high stakes crusher. You decide you want to treat people professionally, but at that moment in time, you're playing 100 NL, 200 NL. There's a gap between who you are currently and who you want to be. How do you make it practical to start closing that gap? How do you close that gap between who you are now and the version of yourself you want to be in the future? Sure. Well, you just dress for the job that you want, right? I mean, I started a blog on the poker detox. They had like a little forum that was kind of closed off. And I started a blog right from the start and said, my aspiration is to be a 1020 grinder. And so I'm going to study and put in the work like I think a 1020 player should. And so I just kind of just showed all my different processes. Oh, here's what I'm doing with PO Salva. Here's my index cards for this of what I'm working on, so on and so forth. And I'm just, and I'm also sometimes writing just blogs about what I'm thinking about, but um, pretty much from the word go, I was just studying as if I was already there and waiting for reality. I mean, I already knew I was the greatest. I was just waiting for reality to catch up to me. Okay. Um, so I think just dress for the job you want is a general statement. Mm. How do people start to dress for the job they want and how to make it practical so it's not just wishful thinking? So for example, let's say if someone's watching this, he's playing mid stakes and he goes, you know what? I wanna be the next high stakes crusher. I'm gonna write down, I'm the number one high stakes crusher. I'm gonna start a blog as well. I'm gonna be the best player in the world. Write it down, post yeah. it. I'm gonna change my how name to Matt Marinelli. Yeah. Yeah, just yeah, exactly. Yeah, change your name. Yeah. So how does he make that practical? What does he have to start doing to make that more than just words on a page or a vision of the future? Yeah, I think it could be great to find people that inspire you in some way and see what are they doing and what are things that you can copy about their processes and take on for your own game. So, I mean, I don't think I had in particular, like, it's not like I wanted to be like Linus Love or something, but I, it was helpful that I was in a CFP. So people like, you know, Nick Howard or someone at that time, I could kind of emulate some of the things that, that he was doing. But I think having some, someone that you're modeling after on some way that inspires you like to have your life be like theirs um, can be very helpful. But, you know, I don't think it's anything too crazy. I think on a certain level, people, people probably know what to do. They kind of know what they should be doing. Uh, like, I don't think I'm blowing anyone's mind by saying you have to study and work hard. I mean, half, I, I mean, most of the problem I think is just actually doing it and being committed to doing it. So that's when I, we were talking about a post before where I was like, it's not like you you succeeding is not going to be about you getting another run at once course or you finding another PDF or whatever. It's about you actually committing to this journey with some level of conviction. So I think it starts a little bit more internally. And I think people will know what to do intuitively. Mm. I've heard you mention in your blog that grit is one of the key attributes that allowed you to be successful. I think this ties very well into what we're talking about now. So grit can be defined as bravery and strength of character or courage and determination despite difficulty. There's also a book by Angela, Angela Duckworth, sorry, who you mentioned earlier, called Grit, which defines grit as a combination of passion and perseverance. And she emphasizes the importance of long-term dedication and effort to achieve your goals. Now for you, how would you define grit for yourself and how has it played a role in your success and journey to the high stakes? Well, listen, I take Angela Duckworth as the authority, so I'll just go ahead and copy and paste the passion and perseverance. I mean, I'm I'm playing poker because I was passionate about it, right? And I thought it would be cool. So I'll go ahead and take it. But I, I think grit has definitely been a big part of what has made me so successful in playing poker because I was just so goddamn determined from the moment that I started. Um, 
because I, I mean, I wanted to back up what I said when I applied to, to poker detox, I said I would be the best player and I intended to do that. Um, so, I mean, for me, I think it's, it's been, you know, it's been essential, but probably the most important thing. I don't think I'm really that all that smart or talented. I just think I've just worked insanely hard to, to make this happen. How do you cultivate more grit? Is it trainable or are you just born with it? Oh my, I mean, that's a big question. I don't, I don't even know how to, uh, how to easily answer this, but I, I would want to believe that it's something that is, that you can cultivate at least to some extent. Um, cause I'm also a proponent of growth mindset, um, which I think that's from Carol Dweck who more popularized it, but just believing that you can grow and learn and that your traits aren't fixed. So I think that you can become more gritty. Um, but like anything else, it probably takes, um, a lot of practice. I mean, just getting, and also probably having good role models probably is a big part of it. Um, I can see I've just put so much emphasis on kind of surrounding yourself with uh, good people, but I think it's essential. Mm, it shows it's an important uh, kind of attribute. If that comes up often, uh, it shows it's been a, yeah, a big part of your success. So for you, I'm interested to know, um, obviously you mentioned growth mindset as well, which generally means you're learning from setbacks. And often when things aren't going well, especially as a poker player, it's really hard to see the positives during a downswing. Let's say for you, for example, nine months of being in makeup, when you come out the other side, you can look back and go, that was character building, built resilience. It was a lot of fun looking back. But in the moment you're like, this sucks. This really is tough. So um, I'm interested to know for you, how do you reframe failures or setbacks as learning opportunities as you're going through them? <laughs> well, I mean, part of what takes the sting out of it is just kind of almost, you know, priming yourself that, you know, losing and failure is a, is a part of this. And so it probably, that's probably the thing that has helped me the most is just recognizing that, you know, failure and pain and suffering, whatever you want to say is a part of the game. Um, and when I, when I'm able to kind of assimilate that and accept it, you know, if you, if you're in the game and you get stacked, you can, you don't have to be upset or as upset. You're always going to be annoyed but you, you don't have to be as upset about it and you can focus a bit more on what you need to even be doing. Um, sometimes I have little things like, let's say I can sense that I'm getting a little bit triggered or whatever. I might have questions for myself that I might ask like, all right, what could I learn from this situation or from this hand? And some of these things, it can sound like kind of hokey to say like, what can I learn from this? But honestly, when you ask yourself questions that inspire self-reflection, they stop you from bitching and moaning and complaining. And you might actually, there's so many times where if I stop to think about it, like, what could I learn from this hand? I might think like, oh, I, he checked back the flop with the nuts or something. And I didn't eat, I, okay, that's something I could take away that this person is capable of. Where if I'm just like, oh my God, I can't believe he had the nuts. You know, I'm not learning anything from it. So you, um, you get kind of a dual benefit of, on one hand, you're not as emotional, you're not as tilted. And then on the other hand, you're actually getting more information you know, from your environment. And that's going to inspire you to make better decisions uh, going forward. You're going to, oh, I'll do that again. I'll keep thinking about what I'm going to learn from different situations that are popping up at the table. Mm, I love that. It reminds me of the, that's called a formula from Ray Dalio, who says pain plus reflection equals growth. So anytime you're going through a tough period, exactly what you said, taking time to go, what can I learn from this? What can I reflect on that gives me the opportunity to uh, yeah, get, take a lesson from this tough time? And sometimes it can be just 
you pay lip service to it because you're not actually learning. But a lot of times there is, there's lessons to be learned. There's things that you can uh, kind of tap into to come out the other side stronger version. So yeah, I really like that. So in terms of you being the best player you can be, you mentioned in, uh, I think it was in the questionnaire, your goal is to become the Michael Jordan of online poker. First of all, Certainly, what does that yes. look like for you? I like that. I like the big talk. What does that look like? And in practice, what are you willing to do that you think others aren't? Yeah. You know, I think the Michael Jordan of online, it's something that is more of an internal thing. It's, it would come off like, I, I won't even reveal this because it's a podcast and I'm talking about this stuff. It will make, it almost invites someone to say like, who the fuck do you think you are? Uh, certainly not Michael Jordan. I'll leave that to Linus or whoever, you know, but that's the way that I want to approach my career. And if it works out that way, then it works out that way. Um, but it's more about me treating my career as if I were to become the Michael Jordan of online poker. So that includes me studying until like whatever o'clock in the morning every day because I'm, you know, on principle, no matter how tired, even if I had my worst losing day ever, I'm going to review every hand above six big blinds or more. I'm going to wake up the next day and I'm going to like, I have my notebook with my different things I'm supposed to work. Okay, two bet pot, facing half pot, C bet. Okay, I have my 25 flop subset. I'm going to do this drill, drill, drill you know. I've got to fill in this spreadsheet, fill in this hand to note pop up, whatever. I just have a process that I never deviate from, no matter what's going on. Um, I have a schedule that's really important to me. And so it's just this obsession with process, essentially, is a lot of what it comes down to. Um, and kind of having this goal of who do you want to be or how do you want to be is kind of like your North Star, so you kind of know what your actions are mapping towards. Love that. Yeah, it's almost like knowing what your North Star is and what you're trying to get to, and then doing whatever it takes to to get there. And for you, that's create a system, a process to move you forward towards your goals. So I'm curious to know, could you walk us through a typical day in the life of you as a professional poker player, what your routines look like, very specific from when you're waking up, how you're doing your studying, how much time you're spending on each activity? I think that'd be really interesting for the audience. Sure. So in the morning time, I'd say that's more of a focus, or maybe like early afternoon, I'm focusing on strategy development. So um, you know, I'm just trying to think, cause I actually have a whiteboard. I don't think you can see, it. I have a whiteboard behind me that has maybe like 10 different things on it. So like, okay, I'm working on, I don't know, like different preflop things. So let's say I'm working on preflop. Like I really want to dial in some preflop thing. that's like usually deep stacks have some complicated stuff. So I might have like a separate Evernote document that says like, okay, I don't know, like preflop 150 DBs in this situation. And I'll, Maybe I'll open up simple preflop and I'll run a sim and then I'll have like an Excel sheet and I'll type in different things. So it's very like, I'm almost trying to create it as if it's like a, a research paper. It's like extremely scientific. It's measurable. It's something that I will have something actionable to take away to the tables as a result of the work that I'm doing. Um, one of them could be like, I usually am making 25 flop subsets in PO all the time. So some, something could just be like, all right, what is my CVS strategy going to be, you know, if I'm squeezing out of the big blind versus, you know, cut off in the button. So, and then let's say, or just the button calls. So I'll just put in the ranges in PO, run a 25 flop subset and see, okay, what's the average frequency um, that it's C-betting? Can I range bet? Yes or no? No. Okay. So how am I, what's the average C-bet frequency? What are, what are the compositions that could make sense? And then kind of go from there. This is the deliberate practice. It's super like boring. I don't have fun with this at all. Um, but I see it as kind of necessary because these are the things where I feel like I'm taking the most away because I know for sure I studied this. I wrote it down. The writing down is a big thing for me because then it's like, okay, I have like a, 
notebook like extensively of all these different spots and I actually remember what I studied as opposed to like, all right, you know, whatever, I'm just going to run a PO solve at the end of the day. And then we'll just, whatever I remember, I remember it's more trying to be extremely organized in what I'm studying uh, to get the most out of it. Um, just, just a quick okay. question on that. Is mm -hmm. that a physical notebook you keep or is it a digital one? And how do you organize all your notes and thoughts so that they're in a place that you can actually go back to them? Yeah. So I have like an Evernote journal mm -hmm. and I also have a physical journal. So I have a journal with pen and paper here. So if I need to write anything down for me to remember for later on, usually like I have a system of, all right, write it down in the notebook, then it makes its way to the whiteboard. And if it's on the whiteboard, I'll remember to get to it at some point. Um, and usually in the morning times, that's my more over overarching strategy creation time. Perfect. Um, yep. And I can keep going. Yeah. And then next. Okay. After your yep. So after that, I, I at some point I'm going to be playing poker. Um, um, the best times to play, you know, if you live in the United States, obviously are going to be at nighttime. So usually my main game is playing 2550 on ACR. I'll play anywhere from 1020 to 100, 200 and the 200, 400, uh, no rattle games, but typically just holding the 2550 lobby for as long as I can until maybe, you know, you know, Victor Kudinov like kicks me off or something. I don't know, <laughs> but, um, Playing is kind of the least interesting part. I think we understand what that means. But then studying. So after I, let's say I play like a 1, thousand, 1500 hands, whatever for the day, I will go into hold a manager three and I will copy all the hands that I just played above six big blinds or I'll, I'll just copy them all. I don't know. And I'll import it into GTO wizard. They have their database analyzer. And that makes it a lot easier for me because what I'll do is I'll open all the hands that I played above six big blinds. So I'll have that on one screen. And then the other screen, I have the GTO wizard thing. And so rather than having to go hand by hand and inputting everything into GTO wizard, it has all the hands already, pre like it already has the solves pulled up for you. So it's as simple as like, okay, I played this hand. Here's the GTO. Okay. This hand, look at this solve. Okay. And so I'm basically just looking for any type of mistake that I could have possibly made or anything that I could be curious about. This is where I'm more creative, where it might be like, all right, let's say it's a King seven, three flop. And I'm like, so why is queen deuce suited a better bet than jack five suited and can i i can allow myself to think a little bit rabbit hole a little bit think about okay how is it the blocker effects the removal you know the nut making potential okay that was interesting i don't know if i'm going to use that specifically but that's that is interesting for me and so sometimes i might have ideas that make it to my whiteboard that just come from like hmm, i wonder if i just i wonder could i make check min raise a size in this situation I wonder how I could do that, um, if that's possible, or does that make sense in theory, and so on and so forth. But this is definitely a more creative side, and also it helps me kind of unpack the day because when you're playing high stakes poker and there's you have tons of money on the line, you just kind of have to make <clears throat> you have to make big decisions and just live with it. And so this kind of helps bring some order to the chaos and to just see like okay, from a theoretical perspective, where was I off base or on base with all these different decisions. Kind of just leaving no stone unturned. So with this post review, uh, let's say you've got like a thousand hands to look at. I'm sure if some players try to replicate this, they might feel overwhelmed. Like how are they going to get through all those hands? So for you, how do you kind of classify certain hands as a mistake that you want to go deeper and look into? And how do you prioritize which hands to spend time in, on and not to get lost in just looking at every hand in detail? Right, right. So for what it's worth, if I play, I'm not reviewing a thousand hands. Most of them you're folding pre-flop, right? Mm -hmm. So this is if I win or lose six big blinds or more. 
Um, and I think I just picked that because I'm bomb pots on ACR. It's six big blinds. So 6.01, I'll review it. I don't need to see me just check bolding trash. Um, so it is more approachable than it sounds. But the nice thing too with GTO Wizard is also tells you um, whether or not something could have been a mistake and it quantifies the EV loss. So it might be like, if I see a hand that says minus, you know, one BB, all right, I'll click on that. I know to pay closer attention to that. But if I see something where it says it's theoretically okay, I know that it's more standard. I might just kind of zip through it pretty quickly and not pay as close attention to it. Great, perfect. That's very specific. In terms of time spent on that, how long would it take you uh, on average to review uh, your session for the day? It really, you know, it depends a lot on also like how into it or interested I am. I think if I needed to get it done quickly, it could be done in 10 to 15 minutes, potentially, if I'm really zipping through. But usually I spend more like 30 minutes, 40, 30 to 45 minutes, because I'm always, there's something that comes from it that I get curious about. Um, pretty common for me to open up PO Solver and say like, okay, you know, in GTO Wizard here, you know, it says this, but it's 132 big blinds. It's not 150. And also, you know, I bet 62% pot, not 75. And I'm just curious about how to, how that might change things or maybe doing some level of node knocking. And so kind of letting my curiosity, you know, at least doubles the time that it's going to take. Um, mm -hmm. But I would say probably a half an hour is probably a good amount of time to spend on that type of thing. Yeah. And after you finish your post game review, how does the rest of your day look? Well, at that time, it's pretty late because um, it's American nighttime. So it's like, all right, it's almost, uh, it's kind of for bed, basically. So it's basically the last thing that I would do. So then when do you get free time? When does, when you're not studying or grinding? Well, I mean, I have to plan it. Um, but when, when is the free time? I think I tend to have more kind of on off days where I, I just kind of prefer to be either I'm really working hard today or I'm kind of taking off. Mm-hmm. Nice. So when you're on, it's basically wake up, do your mono routine, and then you're basically going into that kind of deep deliberate practice, playing poker as much as you can, and then reviewing that session. And that's most of the, the days, so to speak. Anything else you fit into your mm -hmm. days on an average day, average grinding day? Well, I think that's probably the most important stuff. Um, yeah, I, I think that basically sums it up. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. The strategy so, development can encompass a ton of different things, like all sorts of different softwares, depending on what I'm trying to work on. But just as a general template, it, I just chunk it as like strategy development, playing, and then review. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah, I like that. I like having broad categories, which could also encompass a lot. I'm sure certain days that goes off into the hemispheres in terms of different things you're learning. Other days, it's probably more structured and you go straight into playing. Uh, but yeah, it gives us a really good framework of how your days look, which is great. Uh, so I've heard a fellow, some fellow poker players, uh, detox players in particular, talk about you and what they think about you. And one of them says oh, no. they admire you. One thing that they may the most about you is as much um, as you're up or down. So, for example, you could be down 100K in a month. Tomorrow, you're going to wake up, get some coffee, review your hands, drill the spots, and then play, rinse, and repeat. I think this was Free Nachos who said that. So how did you develop <laughs> this good. detachment from results and the ability to uh, be very process-driven and show up no matter what, even when results are going against you? Well, it probably just comes back to this strong sense of building this specific identity and focusing at just a ton on process. And you were asking about like, can you cultivate grit? I think some of it is just going through these different iterations. And it definitely gives you a lot of positive reinforcement when you do stick to your process. And then over a long enough period of time, it works out for you. I mean, obviously, it hurts like hell when you're just losing a bunch of money. And, <laughs> you know, you're just frustrated. But when you see that, working and really hard over a long enough period of time 
seems to yield something for you, it, uh, it's very, we'll say it's very encouraging to stick to that. Mm -hmm. Do you ever struggle to stick to that? Is there moments where you want to just hit the snooze on that alarm? You feel like the identity you're trying to become is stretched too far? And is there any like ne negative self-talk you have to battle against? Or do you feel like once you're decided, you can override anything in the moment? Um, well, I would say generally, no, there's nothing that derails me from this. But there's there's times that I get kind of exhausted from poker in general and need to take time away. So I, de I definitely tend to be an all or nothing type of person where if I'm taking away from poker, I'm completely stepping away. But what I would never do is kind of half-ass it of just like just kind of showing up, putting in random volume and just hoping for the best. Um, so kind of just sticking to that. With your all or nothing approach, how do you uh, self-regulate that? By that, I mean, how do you choose when to push on? So I can tell you have a really crazy work ethic. So often when you've got that skill set, you need to combat that with some form of recovery and way to recharge. And some players that be very structured have set days of the week off. I'm guessing from you, potentially you could take days off as you feel. So how do you kind of regulate when to balance to push harder and when's a good time to take a break to, uh, to recover? Well, I guess the benefit of having experience and doing this for a long enough period of time, you just kind of have to listen to your body and your mind. You kind of know when you're being stretched too thin, or hopefully you can learn this over time. And I guess I just take time off and I need to take time off. Sometimes I might plan it weeks in advance of saying like, okay, I'm going to, I mean, I'll tell my wife like, all right, so this, like the next 10 days or whatever, like you're not going to see me or something, you know, I have to really do this. But then the week after that, like, okay, we'll go out, we'll go out to eat, we'll do this, we'll have all sorts of fun stuff, we'll plan the party, you know, all that. Um, so I think even just, you know, I'm a very organized person, I tend to plan everything. So even just planning, just anticipate, now I can just anticipate, I'm going to need to relax, I'm going to need time off, you know, so sending benchmarks that seem reasonable or make sense, like, I know for this month, I'm going to be working pretty hard this month, but I know, okay, starting August 1st, I'm going to take some time off. Yeah, nice. I like that. It's like setting a rhythm, like a workflow of when you're working and when you're recovering. And for you, obviously, you're a good planner, so you can do that by planning, but also you're very intuitive of how that feels and when you'll need time off. It's also good to have a partner or a wife because they can definitely put you in balance where if you haven't seen, haven't seen for two weeks, they're like, hey, can we, I'm here, can we do something at some point? And you've got to- Yeah, that's a nice version. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. that's the supportive version. Yeah, good stuff. So Rene, yourself, what are your kind of practices look like in terms of how do you get that balance between when you're working, when you're taking time off? Um, yeah, what's the kind of your workflow look like and how do you kind of make sure you're not pushing things too hard? Well, so how I, do I... Sorry, that was, sorry, that was for Rene. Oh, sorry. I see, I see. Um, hmm, interesting question. I mean, it, definitely what Matt said, I can relate to a lot of things like that at some point also you just feel like it. And because at some point you kind of get to know yourself, I kind of schedule, for example, I would say I, I'm way more scheduled like Monday to Friday or Monday to Saturday, nine to five. That's how I like to do it. At some point also, I was wondering uh, if I should push through, let's say, for example, it's five o'clock, grind time over, but you have a good game. What do you do? Right. I'm sure people have been in this situation like, yeah, should I continue? Should I not continue? I remember a good friend of mine, he said, well, I'll just calculate my hourly. If it's more than X, I'll continue. And if we continue on for more than two hours or three hours, more than my normal session, I'll just take the next day off. For example, I think that's a, a pretty good solution. For myself, I kind of said like, listen, this is just around my stop time. 
So I don't care who's at the tables. I leave. Because for me, it was more important to keep my routine in place so that the next day I'll just, you know, show up and play the same amount of hours. So for me, personally, just sticking to the routine, I think it's a bit more important. Then on days where I might feel a bit off, I think aligning your expectations, like, hmm, I feel a little bit off today, so maybe not expect like the best of the best genius plays today. So, But I'll at least sit down. And it's a funny thing, when you expect to play worse, usually what comes out is quite decent. Whereas if you go in and you don't check in with yourself and realize, ah, oh, you know, today I'm probably not at my best, and you go in expecting your best, you get very frustrated, and that usually is a very sloppery, sloppery slope down. So I think kind of checking in with yourself to see how you feel, for example, also before playing and kind of aligning expectations accordingly, uh, I, I think it's uh, very important. I usually also schedule in just one day where I mainly focus on strategy. So for example, I'll do the same as Matt. Afterwards, I'll review all hands. Usually I create some filters, exactly what Matt said, very deliberate based on, okay, uh, this is a specific spot that I'm working on. So let's say now I have like six filters specifically where, uh, for example, top of my, my mind, I have one filter that shows me my strong hands. And if I, and then I'll review if I got the maximum out of my stronger holdings. That's, for example, a filter I made that I will review. Or I face a river bat in certain situations because I don't want to overfold. Or I might even just have a filter. I play a three-way pot out of position because that's just a strategy of a, a, a section of the tree where I've, where I've dived into deciding what my strategy will be. And I want to review all hands that I played in a three-way pot, for example. So I'll, I'll, I'll do stuff like that. I think actually it was... I think it was Goosecore also said in the podcast, no session, no next session is played before the last session is reviewed. And I think this also doubt doesn't creep up and it keeps you curious. I have exactly what Matt also said. You review a hand and like that triggers something or in game, you know, or you're like, hmm, okay, I'll do this, but I'll mark this hand and write down like, hmm, could I maybe, or in this spot, you know, how does the ranges really look like? Can I maybe do some research or is this, is this a thing? Then I'll, then I'll mark it. I'll just play the handout, you know, however I think is best at that moment. But I'll definitely mark like, hmm, maybe this is a thing. I, I, I want to discuss this hand. And then, yeah, based on how much of these hands you have, yeah, your review can become sometimes a little bit longer because you go down the rabbit hole on some points. And other reviews, you know, they tend to flow really quickly because there was not too much interesting stuff going on. So I, I see a lot of uh, sim similarities in terms of... Uh, what I do and what Matt does in that regard. I was curious, Matt, you talk a lot about detox. Has there been anyone else beside Nick that had a very big impact on your career and your success? Yeah, sure. I think um, Pat Howard, who is his brother, is probably, I mean, he ultimately maybe played an even bigger role or I, I don't even know how to compare it, but I mean, they, I mean, Pat Howard is, He's he's great. What can I say? It probably doesn't get enough uh, <laughs> enough credit, but he um, really complemented a lot of skills um, when he kind of came along into poker detox. Uh, he complemented Nick's skills. He complemented you. You're really in the Howard family. You you ma married their sister, or mm -hmm. yeah, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> uh, I was I was also running. You you mentioned like strategy creation a lot as a topic. Um, mm -hmm. Many players, you know, they use solvers, but as discussed, it's how you, how you use them. 
what do you feel like is a very effective way to use a solver and what do you feel like is a very what's the opposite of effective ineffective 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 Mm -hmm. way to to use a solver yeah well i mean sticking with pat i mean one thing that i really appreciated so much about him is that he came into poker with a scientific background where he had a degree in physics and he decided that that wasn't really the path for him and wound up kind of joining up with nick howard and his uh, coaching for profit. And, you know, I mean, Pat just brought this scientific perspective. It just blew me away, just the level of professionalism that he brought to everything that he did. He was incredibly organized, always like, you know, following the scientific method. It, it felt like reading the content that he was making was like reading a research paper, which I really loved. Um, and so now when I do my own studying, I mean, it's a lot of it is just kind of using the same approach to treating poker scientifically and logically and all and being also being very thorough and professional um is basically the way that i do it so i don't i tend not to run a ton of random sims and just see you know when i'm in my creativity time that's okay to do that but when i'm doing strategy development that's when i'm like okay i'm going to make a 25 flop subset i'm going to have an excel page and i'm going to see okay on all these different textures what's the average bet and then what would the exploitability be um, that's another thing where like if you're trying to measure how exploitable is something you see, okay, like let's say PO solver is betting 90% of the time, you know, in position might have a certain EV. And then let's say you do the same thing, but you node lock or range bet, and then you see the EV will change. It's usually going to go down because you're deviating from GTO. And you can see, okay, how much did that did I lose by making that simplification? And so, like, let's say it was one chip out of a thousand chip pot. That's, you know, a tenth of a percent of the pot. That's pretty acceptable. So it's like, okay, yeah, I'll just, maybe I'll just bet my entire range in this situation. But it's having the, you know, the the discipline to want to quantify these things and not throw caution to the wind and saying, like, okay, if this were, like, published, you know, this is an experiment that would be reproducible. That's science. Um, and so... It's definitely the way that I like to approach poker because I, I mean, it just resonated with me a lot. I'm also because I'm such a organized and logical person, but also because I saw how well that it worked for poker detox, coaching for profit, and the different, just what Pat contributed as a person. Um, so that's basically the way that when I use Solver, it's usually a part of a bigger project, a more of a comprehensive project. Only. Only when I'm in my sort of creativity time at the end of the day will I kind of look at a random sim. So then what's the difference? Because you also mentioned like you review, let's say, for example, you go to GTO Wizard, you upload your hands, you review certain hands. So that's when you, for example, use a solver to review a specific hand. But then when Correct. you, for example, it's usually, or at least depending on when people listen to to this podcast, I know GTO Wizard is going to come up with a lot of cool updates where we can actually customize a lot and actually build our own strategies. But for now, for example, I'll use Pio for that because that's where you have more of the freedom to determine actually what your strategy is going to be, right? Like downside of, for example, a pre-solved sim with multiple sizings, you can kind of follow the hand, but the ranges are going to look very different at some point of the tree if your opponent plays a different strategy, if you play a different strategy. And to come back to deliberate again, if I just plug in a hand because I want to know if I played the hand correct, that's I think... 
not the optimal question maybe to ask, right? If you're trying to go through the hand, trying to learn from something, I think you already mentioned you look at the sim and instead of just looking at your hand, you also see like, oh, the queen deuce is betting more than the jack five. Interesting. Why would that be? You're trying to learn a certain heuristic from that that you can maybe spot in other hands that you're reviewing and that becomes a concept that you can actually start implementing into your game. So then when... When... When you then use Pio, it's more for like building the actual strategies. You run these subsets, you determine your actual size. And then on like certain terms, okay, how, what kind of sizing I will use now? Sure. Yeah. So it can help you kind of devise a strategy for how you want to polarize your range overall. And so a piece of it might be looking at just frequencies, but then some of it might also be um, figuring out what is the range composition. So some, I'll give you a different example where I use GTO Wizard because um, it was just simpler, was looking at river spots and figuring out, just as a basic question, how often do I check the nuts in a check call check bet line or like whatever. So like in a discontinued line, how often am I trapping? And mm -hmm. so I look at it, the same 25 flop subset and, you know, whatever, uh, have an Evernote document Excel page and I'm just kind of going through and you can just see like, okay, because GTO Wizard has the breakdown of different range and different hand strengths. How often do I check the nuts here? And okay, like, and I'll look at maybe four different river cards and have like, I'll do enough that I have a significant sample size and I can see, okay, PO or like GTO Wizard check the nuts X percent of the time. So that gives me a heuristic when I'm playing the game where now I have a process for making a decision. I know what the baseline is. So if I ever get confused, I have no idea what to think about the blockers or anything. If I only have one second to make a decision, I know I have a percentage in mind with the randomizer for how often I would want to check the nuts in this situation. But you can't really do that reliably if you just look at one solve in one situation. It makes it a little easier if you go through lots of different things and type it, type it all in. This is the deliberate practice where I'm doing the boring stuff so that when I'm playing the game, like I'm like, okay, I feel confident that what I'm doing is at least close to GTO um, or it just, I don't know, it just keeps me more well-protected overall. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you can be like, oh yeah, I should check some strong hands, but what is some strong hands? Can we make it maybe, you know, getting more specific, so we can exactly, actually, yeah. you know, in game. Yeah. So I just, I think that it's important to, think about things probabilistically. That's just, well, that's just how I tend to approach it. So um, when you're talking off the air there, um, we, you know, you're like, people might make different decisions. And we say, I'm not, I'm going to hard exploit essentially because he's never, he's never betting this or he, he's always betting this. I would rarely ever say someone is always or never doing anything. But I did also say that I like exploiting specific people, but I like having that benchmark to stay anchored to like, let's say I'm going to bet in a situation 50% of the time, I might plus or minus 10, maybe 20%, depending on the person or the situation. Maybe I think something about the blockers, but there's always like some kind of um, anchor point um, where I want to, I, I guess that's part of playing uh, any kind of minimally exploitative strategy, which most people are playing at least some level exploitative, um, is thinking about things probabilistically. Yeah, I agree. Usually if there is a discussion as well and I hear someone say always, never, I'm like, uh, I mean, we, we, we cannot say, right? You should always account for a certain amount of, let's just call it a random factor that a certain random hand can be in here. Because even, for example, within your baseline strategy, you might say, I never have this or never have that. 
you're still human. You know, one day you might miss a certain combo here or there, or you make a mistake. You know, people can make a mistake and suddenly have a different hand than they're supposed to have. So you always need to keep that human factor and that random factor in consideration. And yeah, basically what, what you're touching on there is the, I think when you build, when you do your strategy creation, you create like a baseline strategy, right? It's a place to fall back to. The thing that you will do most of the time. But you also mentioned indeed, like we have to take into consideration that some people play different. But from that baseline strategy, you can then, oh, this guy folds less, this guy folds more. You could increase your, your frequency. I don't know if you are also then, for example, you could maybe exploit if you use a different sizing versus one person or the other. But obviously then sure. you might go a bit further down a different road than your actual baseline strategy. Usually it's a bit easier to exploit, in my opinion, within frequency. So you have your baseline sort of sizing scheme in a certain spot. And if you think someone is exploitative, you you just increase your sizing. It's very hard for people to pick up on that, where if you suddenly be like, hey, this guy falls out to overbet, then you just start inventing overbets in spots where it may be not a thing, or like a certain size is not a thing, then you might be surprised as suddenly this guy who you fought forward a lot now suddenly starts calling because you're doing something that makes no sense whatsoever. And you were just, you didn't anymore think about the strategic the overall strategic approach. Whereas if I think if you just increase a certain frequency with your bluff catchers or your bluffs, it's very hard for people to pick up on that. So what's kind of your thought about sustainable exploitation, so to speak? Well, I mean, I would say with that too, be open to the possibilities. I mean, you never know. Maybe, you, maybe you're missing something. You could target people specific sizings more. I mean, I remember my biggest pot that I won when I first played 2550 was against Berkey of all people <laughs> and um, it was like playing 2550 on WSOP in the year that uh, we had COVID and so it was like all online and I just had some situation early on in the session where I just had the nuts and I knew that Berkey would think that I'm just some online kid that I'm going to be over I already knew that he thought that and so I just had a I just had a situation where I had the nut flush and I just snap jammed like 500% pot which was not a play in theory but I know Berkey's going to overcall. And so the way mathematically to maximally punish someone that's going to overcall is to bet maximum. And he snap called with some trash bluff catcher and he just, it, it worked perfectly. It was the perfect exploit for that vacuum situation. Mm -hmm. I had to have a lot of confidence to just pull something like that off. I mean, yes, it would have been easier to just bet three quarters or to bet 1.5. But I guess, you know, just like being, thinking of what does it depend on? Okay, that's the way that you would max exploit someone that overcalls is to bet max. And so, that's yeah, yeah, this is indeed a very good specific example. Like, I recall so some people, it's almost like that hand, he might have just folded if you would have just bet quote, quote, normal size. Because that basically, these are like guys that very, get very curious when you polarize a lot. Maybe it was also a spot where you might have a lot of the ace blockers or whatever. And then, basically, the bigger you go, the more likely they are to call this kind of the. Yeah. <laughs> kind of the situation you're and describing. even just snap jamming i'm like trying to play the role of like stupid bully like you know isolder one type yeah and, like oh know. i oh i i have the isolder is not stupid so but, let's you know. let, let's let, let's just snap jam it in you know exactly like a hand yeah. that you have no decision with whereas if you maybe have the nuts you might have to think about it a little a little more right like hmm, what would be the good sizing here uh maybe not go too big well when you just yeah. have the ace of hearts uh, profile online kit he just shoves yeah, it in. exactly part of it because if you're snap jamming it comes off as premeditated and if he thinks my premeditated orientation towards the game is to just to over bluff like some crazy person he's just gonna 
And also like he he snap called back, like kind of to send a message to me, I think, of like, I'm not afraid of you. Um, but unfortunately, just one level below. I mean, I love Bert. He's a great, great player, but many players who are listening to the podcast are probably now uh very motivated to start to uh, deliberately work on their game. Often players don't really know what to work on. So two questions. How should people go about and how do you go about finding your leagues? And then how would you best work on improving those? Okay, so for individual people, I know I have a very specific, you know, highly regimented, highly logical approach to the game that works for me. And it's uh, a routine and a style that I've cultivated over years. It's not going to copy and paste to everybody. And, you know, I think there's some people that are just very intuitive that would not really want to sit down and think that hard about all of this different stuff um, or to do it in quite this way. So that's why in the beginning, I'm really emphasizing on finding coaches or study material or whatever it's going to be that really works for you. So if you're, as long as you are putting in some level of effort to try to cultivate a routine, I think that's the most important part because this is something that I've developed through iterations that has worked for me. Um, finding my own leaks. I, I mean, one of my favorite tools is hand to note. Um, hand to note is a, basically a tool that can, really comprehensively help you review your database. So I can essentially import all the hands I played, let's say on like ACR, and it gives you some very detailed pop-up stats of all the different, basically the way you play in every different situation. So I have a tab for like, here's how I play in two bet pot in position preflop raiser. So let's say if I'm button versus big blind, right? And then here's for the turn, on, here's on the river. Okay, now what if I'm calling out of the big blind? Okay, two bet pot out of position preflop caller. Here's how I'm defending against C bet. And not just how I'm defending against C bet, here's how I defend against a third pot, half pot, three quarters, over bet. And next to that stat, you know, let's say it's like I'm folding versus one third C bet 35% of the time or something, I'll have PO solvers number, which I figured out, or that Pat figured out through doing um, multi flop aggregation reports in PO. So I can compare what I'm doing to what PO Solver is doing, and I can get a sense of like, okay, at the bare minimum, my frequencies are basically correct here. And also have a strong sense of what um, the range compositions would be in each of these. So Antino can also help you see like, okay, here's how often I'm check raising a set or two pair or whatever. And so you can get a sense of like, okay, I'm relatively balanced in this area, so I'm playing well. I don't need to study this as hard, but let's see. Let's say like, oh, I'm overfolding versus the half pot, you know, by like 2% or something or 3%. I mean, even for me, any small amount is an error that's intolerable, right? So it's like, okay, um, I know maybe I'll write that down in my notebook, okay, overfolding versus half pot. And I'll set that intention when I'm going into a session of like, okay, just remember to, you know, kind of calibrate a little bit with the, versus the half pot bets. And so I basically have the entire game tree sort of mapped out in hand to note of like every basically common situation, how often I'm using different sizings and comparing that to PO solver um, and how how well I'm defending against bets across the entire game tree. And I'm constantly figuring out like, if there's a leak to plug, I'm gonna leak it or I'm gonna, going to plug it and focusing on that um, specifically. So if I'm, yeah, basically if I'm overfolding or under bluffing or under raising, I try to get to that as quickly as possible um, and, 
start steering it in the right direction. All right, and also maybe some situations. Usually when I, if I look at my own game and I'm deviating, like, or for example, I, I, put, I put a hand in, in, in Wizard or something and it says, hey, uh, mine is to be play. I'm like, okay, yes, but like some deviations are, are on purpose, right? Like the sure. goal is not net. Some, it depends obviously the level. I mean, you, you play 25-50 against some of the best in the world, shorthanded, then you better be very accurate. But yes. it doesn't necessarily mean that if you deviate in a certain in a certain note, like basically it should just raise your awareness, but like, hey, you're deviating here. Do you have a good reason for that? Sure. So you might have personal targets. You don't necessarily have to use PO solver yeah, as yeah, an exactly. example, but you have a target range of what you want to be in each different zone and try to aspire to do that. Yeah, maybe you're playing two GTO in a spot where you should be sure more out of line, for example. I think also I think we touched on that a little bit previous in the podcast as well. But in terms of improving your leaks, uh, like I'm sure I'm sure you've seen monitors. Maybe you've done it yourself. I've done it myself. Where you're just like uh, I don't know, call river, call river, fold river. You you hang like these notepads telling you that you should do something. Oh. <laughs> uh, okay. But sometimes it doesn't really work, or most of the time actually it doesn't really work. You have to when you spot a leak, you have to find the origin of the leak. So for example, let's say you overfold in a certain spot. Well, that might be because your range composition on the previous street is not well done. So basically, if you just say, I should call river more, but every time you have nothing on the river because the way you construct your range, just calling more might actually not be, not be, very, not be a very good solution. It's actually, it's actually a leak on a previous street that makes you fold river more. That's exactly where the strategy development comes in, though, of why I focus on like, okay, here's how I'm going to play a balanced range, relatively speaking, on each street. So I know it pays off. It just makes me so much harder to play against in general because so much of it winds up being sort of premeditated in a way of, like, I play a good flop stab range. So it just extrapolates that. It's kind of harder to play against me by the time you get to the river. Like, if I check back the turn, I'm going to have uh, just kind of a much stronger range than if someone's not protecting as much. Yeah, so, bas so basically in the report, you see, okay, I'm deviating here from theory. Then you might open a solver, look at the range. Let's say the half pop bets, oh, is it simply because I'm missing the hands with these type of heuristics as a call? And like you said, you go in game. Most probably then if you're like, I have that as well. It's like, oh, I, I know I should call more. So then there's like a spot you feel like, eh, it's close. Oh, this is exactly one of the spots where I clearly overfolding. So my intuition says it's close, but actually I'm overfolding. So I, probably everything that's close, I should just move to call. It's a relatively easy spot to fix, but yeah, it, it becomes harder when, for example, you're like, you go to this later street, and you're like, okay, so Pyro raises his hands, calls his hands, and they're like, wait, but I don't have these hands. You have to be realistic with yourself as well there. I think it's very easy to just be like, oh yeah, okay, but mm -hmm. forget the fact that you you never have those hands in the first place. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what makes, so I do a lot of, I use the drill feature in GTO Wizard really often as well. So if I see, okay, like I'm overfolding versus a half pot seabed or whatever, I have tons of different drills with color-coded tags that I go to uh, pretty frequently. And so I'll just, maybe I'll pull that up of like, okay, I'm going to go through 20 of these and then um, just as a refresher. And then like you said, like if you're in a spot where it feels close and you know that's like your leak, it can make sense to kind of defer towards maybe calling if your leak is overfolding because you're basically sort of calibrating for a bias that you have because you might have a bias that is 
weighted towards folding and you adjust it by kind of overriding it a little bit when you get that feeling like, okay, this is really close. Because if you were able to uh, intuit what was truly close, you wouldn't be overfolding. So your meter is probably a little bit off in that scenario. Yeah, and basically by doing the strategy creation, you build better intuition. So next time by the probably, repetition, your, yeah. your, your intuition becomes more correct. Mm -hmm. It's just a ton of drilling, but yeah. Yeah, a ton of, a, a ton of drilling. Do you have like, because then what I sometimes would struggle with, like, so I feel, I feel like, I feel like I know something then, and then I'll move on to a different point. But if I don't pay enough attention to the other point, it might, it the league might start to come back. Do you mm -hmm. have you experienced that? So come back and compared to like, let, let's say for example, you build a wall, right, to hold to hold back the water, and at some point a little hole comes out. Well, you've identified the hole, so you stick your finger in it. And they're like, or, or you, you know, you put something on it and you work on a different hole. But if you don't pay attention, the other hole opens up again. But it, 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 like, do you, you are describing, like, I've kind of accepted that, you know, holes yeah. will always exist. A, yeah. It, well, yes. I mean, you are describing essentially the marquee problem of like coaching small stakes players. First of all, like that's always going to be uh, a thing that would come up is trying to play whack-a-mole with all these different leaks. I mean, part of why I study so goddamn hard is to minimize how many uh, leaks that I might have in my game. But it, poker is so complicated that, of course, you're never going to be perfect. There's always going to be something that you have that's, you know, exploitable. But that's why I value the simplified strategies and try to simplify things when possible. And I could, you know, I'd like to use as few sizings as possible in any situation um, so that I can more reliably, you know, get to the river while losing as little EV as possible. Yeah. So basically then your river decisions become, or at least because your range is better intact, it's easier yes. to, to play the latest street. So how do you then, I get this question actually a lot and people have various ideas about it. So how do you then determine your bet size scheme? Let's say, for example, you open a part of the tree and there are some situations where where a solver clearly, where, where like the heuristics are quite clear, right? You lean to a lot of big bets, you lean to a lot of small bets. But then there's some spots where it's like, it bets 20% one third, 20% three quarters, 20% over bet. Now, what do you do? Uh, are we talking about on the flop? Uh, this happens flop sometimes on turn. Sure. Definitely on the river, obviously. So, so okay, yeah, I, I was gonna say, so how, how would that impact for you, flop, turn, river? How do you... Yeah, so something on the flop, I think this is where coming up with the multi-flop subset, you know, comes in, where you can say, okay, here's the GTO baseline. If I give PO like 30% pot, 50, 75, 125, what is the EV for the imposition C better? And then let's say, all right, on a specific texture, I'm going to let it either bet half pot or check. And what is the EV? How much did I actually lose by, you know, conceding that complexity? And what I found is a lot of the time you don't, like you don't lose as much as you think you do. And so by, you know, trying to simplify things of maybe just having one size on a particular texture on each flop, now each, you, you might not just have one size period. It could be, you know. Yeah, texture based. More to texture one, based. one size per texture. Yeah. But you'll find that it's a, fra a lot of times a fraction of a percentage of the pot. And so this is something that can be really hard for a lot of poker players to accept if, it, if they want to accept it is that, you know, we want to feel like we're super smart when we're playing poker. Like, we're so, like, I can do better than, like, a simple protocol 
of like just bet your bluffs like half the time or 70 whatever you know i'm smarter than that i know the blockers i know the situation yada 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 most of the time simple protocols and especially on early streets are just going to outperform you know whatever linus or whoever would really uh, attempt to do because you're um, more accurate right um i think that uh, yeah i mean ultimately you don't even need to debate it it's like that's the the benefit of it being scientific is like you can just measure how much ev is lost and then if you want to you can node lock your own thing and experiment like okay if i had four sizings what how would i compose my range and then you can see how much ev did i really lose compared to gto yeah compared to if i would sense. build a range myself right yeah, and then yeah, you can yeah. even another thing is that what you might do in the quiet of your own room like oh you're so gto but maybe when you're actually playing you know you're too busy using all your good hands for an overbet because you get excited because you have a set and you might not you know i know it's kind of silly but basically and I mean, you might you're, not you're, use you're, you're, you're describing population as a whole right like it's easier it's easier to screw up a little bit with a strong hand and not find the you know high card with sure. the on blocker it's that that's a hand that's a, a bit a little bit less intuitive maybe i do feel like just pick a sizing and because in the end like how you're going to execute your strategy will actually determine your ev like you already said on the flop give it any any of the sizings as long as you you know if you bet small then by all means usually you bet a lot if you bet big then at least bet less so the, the yeah. sizing is is linked with the frequency but if you then execute that that the execution will always de determine your EV, especially I think on the flop. It doesn't really matter what you change in the solver because EV will not really change that much because it's a solver. So whatever you give it, it will execute perfectly on layer street. And you might play the optimal mm -hmm. sizing, but if on a layer street you screw up, that strategy will actually not be optimal for you. So that was floppy, like you said, on earlier streets in general. Probably you do then the same on turn. Like you try to stick yeah, maybe to less, one sizing, you keep use, your range intact as much as possible. You, to, you know. Because usually right. as you get to later, you might need two sizings. You know, it depends on the situation. Like as things get more complicated, you might need to split more. But I'd say just try to trying to use as few sizings as you can and simplify as much as possible. Um, and the other thing about just the flop is that um, you might have a certain exploitability. Like let's say it's 0.3% of the pot, 0.4% of the pot. That's also with PO having clairvoyance over how you just constructed your range. But a real person doesn't know. First of all, they don't know how you constructed your range to begin with. Second of all, they don't know how to maximally exploit it anyway, even if they knew what you were doing. So in practice, it's usually like this is the worst case scenario is you lose this percentage of the pot um, because that's the max exploit. In, in reality, it's going to be less than that. Yeah, and it's, I mean, there's there's a lot of realizations that people need to make. Like some things are very important to a solver and also very important in-game. We can use it. And other things are very important to a solver because the solver knows the other guys, exactly the range composition of the other guy, right? So if, you know, we don't have a certain hand at least 25% of the time and the other guys knows that, then when that hand is good and you don't have it, you're a bit fucked in terms of e EV, right? right? But in practice, like I said, people cannot see your exact range composition. So... You know, it might be okay to always play a certain hand in a certain way and never have that hand in another line because people, they might not know. Obviously, you know, if you do that to 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 too high of an extent and you just pick strong hands to bet that weak hands to check, we have a problem. But within the weak hands, you know, 
you could maybe have a preference for always checking one or always well, at least with whatever other. I'm doing, it's always going to be pretty close to what GTO would be because it's not that exploitable, even by PO solver. Yeah, exactly. So what would you then? So for example, take check all check bedline. Sure. As as big blind, I think is a a common spot where you know you at least split. But that's the river, and there you're fine with with starting to split and add some. Yeah, I mean, maybe someone that's a freaky genius. Maybe I'll put Pat on this one. I don't know of like how you could simplify the river, but it, I mean, it's pretty complicated. But one thing that I um, had done that I, I felt was pretty useful is basically doing my best to try to get the default frequencies for the river as well. So it's kind of the same process, even though it just takes a really long time, is doing a multi-flop subset for what your river fold frequencies would be in different lines. It just takes a really long time for PO to figure it out because it has to go through every permutation of flop and turn. But I just kind of leave my computer on like all night or whatever and kind of get one size at a time. And so I can see how often PO is betting the river and also how much it folds to each specific bet size. And hand to note, I have that figured out like, okay, um, it's it's pretty convenient where I can see, okay, I'm betting you know, small X percent of the time, here's what PO does. You know, medium size, here's PO. Big size, you know, here's PO. You know, big over bet, PO. Um, and then I can also, you can tab into it and see, like, what's your range composition? Like, how frequently are you bluffing? And you can see, like, oh, am I preferring, you know, am I not bluffing enough for the small size? Am I not bluffing enough for the big size? And it gives you an objective way to try to measure your biases. Um, through looking at your database over a long enough period of time. And then it's going to be the same thing with facing a river bet where I can see like, okay, do I fold too much to small bets? Am I too, am I folding too much to over bets? Now you might say like, you might have a read that maybe you think people over, they don't bluff enough for over bets. Then, okay, maybe you're aiming to fold more than PO, but the point mm -hmm. is that you have to have a target. Yeah, yeah. And the target can be either PO because you don't have, are there any information? So you just want to play solid or when you have other information, you want to maybe reach a higher full percentage than PIO. Right. You also have some coaching experience yourself. What are the most common leaks you see that players have and why do you think that is? Well, I think playing too passive tends to be a big one. Um, and it's something that basically gets revealed to people all the different ways that they might be making mistakes through, you know, basically doing this stat checker that Pat developed in hand to note. Um, and once you can, I think it just helps once you can see from beginning to end, this is the way that you play the game. You see a lot of themes in people just kind of playing too safe overall. Um, and so part of getting people to play closer to, you know, GTO or whatever is usually getting them to be more aggressive. So a lot of the time, I'd say the basic general bias that theoretically oriented players have is that they are more passive than PO solver, um, not intentionally. Just that if you're playing poker the right way, you have to basically, you have to play like a madman, which is really, it's really, really hard to do that day after week after month. And even with players that we're pointing this out specifically, like this is how you play closer to a GTO strategy we just have something called passive drift where like a lot of the time they hit a downswing and then all of a sudden every mixed strategy becomes a fold to them. Um, or they just are passing up on bluffs where I'm like, this is clearly like a nut bluff candidate 
and you're not like I'm going through a review and they don't do it and there's usually some like justification and I think it's just that poker puts a lot of pressure on you it's a really tough game and once you're on a big downswing um, it's funny how that sort of passive drift just kind of seeps in and so for me in my own game that's why it's so important for me to really focus on process and studying really intensely I'm always reviewing what I'm doing in hand to note to make sure that I'm not drifting in that direction either yeah I, pa passive tilt definitely I can relate to that if I if I'm <laughs> if I'm if yeah. I'm less confident or if I'm a bit of a downswing passive tilt is usually where I'll lean towards I'll play tighter I'll play more nitty I'll find a reason not to catch not to bluff catch I'll find a reason why to give up I think it's very important to uh yeah, to kind of, again, be self-aware and kind of check in with yourself uh, when that is actually going on. Any any solutions on how to fix this? <laughs> yeah, I think if you wait until it's already happening, it's probably too late. That's why I focus so much on the process of like, you got to just assume that this is going to happen if you're not on top of it, because I've just seen it happen over and over and over again. Did, um, did, did, did you have the same struggles? And if so, how did you overcome it? Uh, no, because I was three betting 30% at two fives. <laughs> you know, so you're naturally, I, I know. Yeah. naturally, uh, I just kind of playing like a madman. I mean, yeah, it's like, I'm not a gambler, but I just, um, I don't, I don't know. Um, really just sort of devoted to playing the game in a pretty hardcore way where just like, I'm, I mean, I'm just willing to look like a moron and just like make some terrible bluff and like make a 10 big blind mistake or make a big mistake on a, you know, river call because I'd rather just. I can, sometimes I'll just tell myself, if you're going to live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. Like playing this game the right way is pretty volatile. That's uh, that's that's amen to that. I think you also mentioned that. I think I read that in, in your blog. You mentioned that a lot of players they play the game not to lose instead of playing to win. It's kind of also what you mentioned with passive, like too much passive behavior. Yeah, it just comes to a natural human bias of being risk averse. I mean, we just don't really like risk that much. And so it's easier to kind of coil up and play it safe. I think part of the problem with playing a super crazy strategy, sort of like what I was, not like super crazy strategy, but, you know, being willing to take some big risks is that you risk making a big mistake. There's no, like, there's, I'll just give you like a random example of like, if you, let's say you see bet the flop as in position for like one third, and then you bet the turn for three quarters, right? Kind of a pretty standard sequence. On the river, PO solver is gonna like bet 500% pot, like, you know, maybe double digits. Like PO does not give a fuck. It will just 5X pot, okay? The, the problem with this is like, when you're actually sitting there in the game and let's say you just have some random bluff, are you really gonna 500% pot? What if it, that's like a it, 10 it, big it, line mistake? It, 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 might be, it might be higher EV, but for the, for, for, for the brain, it feels like you're risking you're risking a lot. You're like, ah, let's let's just bet three quarters again. Or let's bet hundreds. That will probably get the job done. That's probably what the yeah. passive bias will will tell you. It's not only that. That's a part of it where you're just risking less if you lose. But it's also you're less likely to make a mistake because as you choose bigger and bigger sizings and you get more and more polarized, you get PO tends to narrow things down to more specific combos. And so it gets harder and harder to just intuitively guess what the perfect combo is in this situation. So what you're risking is guessing wrong and making a big mistake. And this is going to extrapolate to lots of different situations in poker. Like let's say you're facing a 
big river bluff catch decision with a really marginal bluff catcher, but you know you, you maybe you could bluff catch with this. You're gonna you might have to take a risk and risk make because there's been plenty of times where I call a river in some situation that seems close and it winds up being a big mistake. But I'm doing it for this more ideological purpose of like I'm just go this is the way that I play the game. I you know live by the sword, die by the sword, or like I'm just going to have this hardcore strategy where I just don't give a fuck. Um and globally that makes you insanely hard to play against. Um because to play poker properly, you just wind up not folding that much. Because the alternative is you just play it safe and you just fold in more of these closer situations. But what you'll find is when you look at your stats at the end of the month or the end of the year, you might just be overfolding by a lot. And so a part of what makes poker beautiful and unsolvable and all this stuff is that there is no way to play GTO. It is too, there's no way for a human being to avoid playing GTO and like not make any 10 big blind mistakes because it's too complicated. So you kind of have to choose your perspective on the game. If you're going to be this, I mean, I'm kind of like an edgelord playing poker of like, I just wanted, I'm the type of person that's going to take the bet, three bet, four bet spot on the flop or whatever, just because I, that's just the attitude that I'm going to approach the game from. For some people, they might never three bet. They may have, might have zero flop three bet range because that is safer. And they make fewer mistakes, generally speaking. And I think there's a ton of merit to it. There's a ton of players that play that way and win a ton of money. But that's just not the way that really works for me. So it's basically being okay with being absolutely wrong sometimes. Oh, yeah. That's probably, maybe that's the most important thing I should impart is I'm mainly entirely wrong <laughs> when I'm playing poker. And yet somehow, you know, I might end up in the green. But it, the experience of it feels like always being wrong and always kind of being this edgelord. If you would, if I would give you, let's say, a break-even 110L player, and you would get three coaching sessions, what would the topics of these three coaching sessions be? Well, I'd really want to take a look at their database and be able to see what are they actually doing. Because, you know, I want to treat people as individuals. When I started, when we started this podcast, I, I think I said, you know, like, if you're going to be a poker coach, you need to take what you're doing seriously. You can't just, you know, throw some shit at the wall. And I mean, people are trusting you with their career. You should take this seriously. And so treating someone as an individual and saying, okay, so what are they actually doing? What are their biases? What are their mistakes? And all of this work that I've done and that Pat has done, even though I'm not really coaching anymore, um, I think I would just start by really breaking down their database and seeing what is their overall perspective on the game um, and kind of having this comprehensive quantifiable benchmark is really the best place to start I, I i don't know i think pat actually has like examples of him doing stat checks with people i mean don't quote me on that but i think it's on his youtube channel yeah, yeah it is on his youtube to channel. check it out you've done your homework <laughs> so um that would probably be the place that i would always want to start with people is to figure out what exactly are they doing and of course that's ultimately going to give me you know the starting place to figure out what type of advice to give them Yeah, so basically the other coaching sessions will depend on what rolls out of the first coaching session, which would be a, a reviewing their game and seeing where mm -hmm. they apparently have flawed ways of approaching poker. 
Yeah, exactly. And you'll oh. tend to find overall trends for people based off of these stat checks. How do you then prioritize what to work on with the students or with yourself when you find leaks? Especially, you know, the lower you go, the more leaks people have. So how do I then decide what is most important? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll just speak for myself in that, of course, there's going to be some level of it that will be intuitive if you're a pro. But one thing that I did that I found pretty helpful was I kind of just did this experiment where I went in hand to note and saw how often was I in each different situation. So as an example, how often, how many times was I, you know, big blind versus button as a potential C better? How often was I, you know, facing a flop C bet as big blind out of position? And so I had the number of times that that happened. And then I estimated the flop or I, I estimated the pot size of each different situation. So maybe if it's, you know, if I open a 2.5 X on the button and the big blind calls, it's a 5.5 big blind pot. Okay, so I can multiply that by the frequency of times I was in that situation. And I can basically, all of this is coming, I can get to my big blind volume, which is how many big blinds are invested in each individual spot. And it's kind of a way of quantifying that, you know, not every situation is equal. There's some situations that are a lot more esoteric that they're important in their own ways, but they have a lot less impact on your game. So when I was coming up with what GTO wizard drills do I want to create for myself to help me improve my game, I prioritized it based off of which spots had the highest big blind volume. I did this for the flop, I did it for the turn, and I did it for the river, um, both for bluffing the river and bluff catching the river. And there's a certain amount of estimation because you're estimating the average pot size, but it gives you a good sense of what you should study. So when I know I'm thinking about like when I study the river, you know, these are the places that I would start are the highest impact situations where, you know, if you're studying check raise, check raise, you know, check raise, I mean, that'd be the least likely thing to happen. It's fancy and it's sophisticated and, you know, it's, there's levels to it that could be interesting, but it might not be the most impactful thing for your game. So I'm really I spent time kind of sorting for impact for myself. Yeah. So, and the impact is the formula of frequency and big blinds because like preflop, for example, is going to be the most frequent, right? If we look at sure, but then river is less frequent, probably the least frequent, but there mm. the pot is the biggest. So it, yeah. it has to be, it has to be a formula of the two. Yeah. I mean, there's different things you could say, like there might be different levels of complexity to different decisions kind of subjective but like preflop would be the easiest where like you kind of could just have a baked in range for 100 big blinds and already know what it would yeah. be so also indeed like in terms of if you think about what to work on what's the hardest spot what's the easiest spot to work on so if you have a high frequency spot that's easy easy to fix probably you know already a good place to to start with those and then the other things become a little bit uh more complicated depending on how easy it is to solve them yeah, exactly. I mean, I the way that, I mean, overall, I would just, if I had nothing else to go on, I would just focus on which spots are the biggest pots that are happening the most often, and then prioritizing my time towards that. Because obviously poker is so big and so complicated, you could get lost in the weeds if you really don't know what to study. So that's, I know it's not perfect, but this was a way that helped me try to target a bit more. And then when well, I have my stat checker that looks at all the stats, I can see, like, I'm not going to study something if I see I'm doing it well right now. Maybe I can come back and review it later, but if I can see, like, okay, I'm making a mistake here, 
I know to run a drill on that specifically. And what about like in, intuitively in terms of you feel like, let's say for example, there's a spot that might look, look my database, but looks it looks like it's fine. But intuitively I find myself not really comfortable about the spot. Like there's also a certain feeling aspect to it, right? Which can, so basically if someone has a lot of leaks, probably intuitively when they're in the spot, they have no clue what to do, right? So I think just playing and figuring out like, hey, I actually have no clue what to do in this spot. is probably also already a decent indicator for, you know, if they're actually leaking yeah. or not. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to ask one more thing. Oh yeah. So then, so then basically, so you've, you've analyzed your game, you found the leaks, then you go into strategy creation, right? You come up with a better strategy. Then before you play, you might review on the points. You set your intention. Okay. This session, I'm going to improve on these points. You play your session. Afterwards, you review those hands, and then basically it's repeat in your case, 10 days straight, then take a little break, and then uh, two years later, you're at 5K. That's, that's... Yeah, that's pretty easy. That's all you have <laughs> that to do. Kind of the, that's kind of the conclusion. I have uh, one last question before I hand it over to Adam. Uh, what is an often overlooked way to increase your EV as a poker player? Well, hmm. I mean, I don't know if there's really any easy way to do it, though. I mean, I feel like everything that I said that I think would actually be high-impacted people, it just takes a lot of work. I don't think there's going to be anything. I don't think there's any secret tips. It just requires, like, an insane amount of work. And if you're someone like me, being very organized, but at the very least, an insane amount of work. That makes sense. For example, you did mention that, you know, you like to play night times, for example in the US because mm -hmm. that's simply when there is the best action. So for example, when I think about something that's often overlooked is something like maybe planning your grind hours around when you're when the games are best, for example. Yeah, we're living or having access at least to, you know, some games in the US because uh we you know some people have a lot of money and they like to gamble here. So uh <laughs> having access to American games is is good. Um so I I will agree with that. Hi guys, Rene aka The Wacko here with a quick Mechanics of Poker 2.0 announcement. In our program you will get access to 80 plus hours of content in which we will explain you all aspects needed in order to become a more successful poker player. Now one of these of course is the technical aspect of the game in which I'll be explaining you all the mechanics behind poker strategies. We'll be talking about GTO, exploitive play with an extra focus on the why behind certain strategies and why the population has certain leaks. And to increase your win rate even further, we've recently added a river bluff and bluff catching section so you can increase your EV when those pots become very big. Our mindset and performance coach Adam Carmichael, he took care of the mental game and performance section of this program in which he will teach you everything you need to know in order to break through limiting beliefs, better handle your emotions, break free from tilt and play your A game more consistently. And last but not least, we've added the management and optimization section in the program in which we will give you various tips and tricks to make it more likely for your poker career to succeed and how to continuously improve as a poker player. Now on top of that, this concept is continuously evolving based on feedback and suggestions we get from our community. Next to all this content, you will have access to our exclusive Discord community, monthly live Q&A calls, 
and one-on-one -on -one coaching session in which we are going to be reviewing if you have been implementing the stuff that we teach you in the mechanics of poker correctly. So do you think you have what it takes to master the mechanics of poker? Go over to mechanicsofpoker.com and maybe you will get a chance to work with me and Adam and make more progress in your poker career. But for now, without further ado, let's get back into more goodness in today's episode. Adam, your more specialized mental game, performance, mindset, what do you think is an often overlooked way that people could increase their EV that they don't spend enough time on? It's a good question. I think if it was obvious, players wouldn't have overlooked it. I think as Matt has kind of covered, it's kind of doing the deeper work. So if I could say one area, it's probably spending more time to plan and go deep. So if we look at Matt, for example, he's spent a lot of time looking at what spots he should be working on. He's probably got a whole learning curriculum of how he should be studying for the next say, months and beyond. Whereas I think most players will just rock up at the computer, look at some hand history, start working on spots, and they haven't done that planning. So the overlooked part would be the planning, the, the plan ahead to where you want to be as a poker player a year from now, two years from now, in creating kind of your own learning curriculum. I'd say that would be yeah, probably an overlooked part. But like I said, if it's if it was so obvious, players aren't silly. Players are clever guys. So they would have figured it out if it wasn't, um, if it was super obvious. All right, I want to spend a bit of time reflecting and looking back on your career. So uh, from this conversation, I've kind of wrote down a few times that you have somewhat of a fearless approach to risk taking, especially as it relates to uh, moving up stakes and implementing aggressive strategies. Why do you think so many players struggle with taking risks? Well, I think one thing is just a basic cognitive bias of risk aversion, which is that losing feels worse than winning feels good. So just naturally, based off the neuroscience, you're going to avoid taking risks because it just hurts more. Um, and so it just informs a lot of the way that people play the game, not just their strategy, but it could also be something like bankroll management. I mean, it's not uncommon to hear about people that are just playing at 200 zoom forever, even if they're winning a substantial amount, they just don't want to move up in stakes unless they have like 500 buy-ins or something. I don't know. Um, probably not the best way to make money, unfortunately. Why does that not apply to you? Why do you feel like you haven't struggled with that? Um, well, I mean, it could be just like even going through poker detox in the beginning, I think that there was a lot of emphasis on playing poker in an aggressive way. Um, so kind of the tribe that I came in with definitely had a more aggressive inclination, which you know, I have talked extensively about how important that is. Um, and I think a lot of it, I just, I still, I would guess would have as much risk aversion or fear as anyone, maybe a little less, I, I don't know, less than the average person for sure. But I think I'm just so committed to playing poker in the way that I feel is the right way and in being a professional that I just will not compromise on it regardless of how I feel about it. So I think probably the most um, important part of it is that I'm just really, really dedicated to playing poker at the highest level that I know how. Mm -hmm. When your risks backfire for you, for example, when you were shot taken, it wasn't working out, how do you uh, recalibrate in those moments. So for example, obviously uh, you're gonna use data from coming back at you from results that you're getting in life and you're going to make some sort of calibration in terms of, am I going down the right path? Am I being reckless here? Or is this the right path that I'm taking on the right amount of risk even though the rewards aren't there? When times get tough for you, uh, how do you uh, 
recalibrate and step back into risks. I think it's these moments where a lot of players over emphasize where things are going badly and they'll step away from risk because like, whoa, I don't want to uh, take on too much because things might go badly. So in those moments, how do you uh, find a way to uh, find that balance with the risk taken? Sure. I mean, if I get to a point where I'm really overloaded, I will take some time away. I don't want to, you know, convey to people that they should do like some dangerous level of risk taking. Like there's a reason that we have fear, right? I mean, if you didn't have fear, you would gotten eaten by a lion and, you know, <laughs> back in the day. So there is fear is adaptive, but I, I, I think the point is that you shouldn't be letting fear ultimately control you. So for me, um, I'll give myself some time. You know, if you need to feel sad, you're going to have to feel sad about it. Poker can be sad. As I've said many times, there's a lot of suffering involved with playing this game. But it's always going to come back to the North Star of what am I trying to do? What am I, you know, what am I trying to become in, in, in playing this game? I'll remind myself like, hey, losing is a part of the process. Losing is the process. I mean, this game is sadistic. You're just mainly losing. <laughs> so uh, it's just less shocking over time. Like, yeah, I'm going to lose. I know I'm going to go on another $100,000 downswing next week. For all I know, I mean that's just that's just how the game goes, and it just takes the sting out of it when I when I prepare myself for it and focus on um, kind of just what my north star is and what I'm trying to accomplish. For me, it's being the number one player in online six max, um, regardless of whether or not that actually happens, which it most likely, almost certainly, will not. Um, that doesn't. That's not so important. It's more about the way that I am carrying myself and my career, the way that I treat it. Um, I take a lot of pride in that. Hmm. You mentioned that when you first joined Detox, you wrote in your blog that you were going to be the biggest winning player in their stable. It reminds me of the uh, Muhammad Ali quote where he says, I told the world I was going to be the greatest before I even knew I was going to be. So for you, where did you get this confidence from? This is a level of innate trust in yourself to find out answers. I'm guessing at this moment, you didn't exactly know the path to be in the best winner in detox. What gave you that confidence going in that you could achieve that? I just, I don't know. I guess I just saw it as necessary to have that sort of self-belief and to lean into it. It's hard to say to what extent are, could these things be partially genetic? I mean, I know I'm a very competitive person, so if you weren't really competitive, you might not be so driven to quite think that way. But um, I, I guess I just saw it as sort of this, this kind of necessary to have this sort of belief in myself in order to be able to aspire to, I don't know, do these great things. And I found a lot of personal meaning in it. Mm. And how did you back that up with like kind of practical actions? Is it the work ethic that you feel like you can outwork everyone else? Is it the... Uh... Kind of deliberate practice that you feel that you were going to do that other players weren't what give you the confidence that in in practice day to day i'm going to outperform everyone around me because i'm willing to do something different well to some extent you have to have faith to start off because if you're i mean i had just applied to the program when i'm saying this so i didn't even have a sense of who was there or how good they were i just assumed that if i'm going to do something i want to be great at it and to give my all to it so of course implied in that is I'm going to work like crazy. And I knew that I would work harder than everyone. Um, and I basically did. Um, but you don't really get to that sort of extreme action unless you have a pretty uh, extreme belief to begin with. And so 
makes it a bit easier when you have that sort of extreme action or extreme belief that leads to the extreme action and you get the big results, which reinforces the belief. Um, I think what a lot of people are, will do if they're not winning in poker in particular is they'll say, I, I will be, you know, I, w I'm, I know I'm not confident, but I just need to win first. Like once I start winning, then I'll be confident. But as I said, poker is a game mainly of losing. You're probably never get, this is, you kind of have to start with believing in yourself and then everything else is going to follow from that. Um, I don't, unfortunately, I don't have a magic formula for how to just automatically believe in yourself. I think it kind of comes from all of these different things that I've talked about. Um, at the very least, starting small. I mean, and believing if you just have chronic um, self-confidence issues could probably, I mean, just at least starting small, I mean, but it seems like a necessary part of the process. I mean, I love Muhammad Ali, so uh, I, I definitely resonate uh, with, with his sort of attitude. It makes perfect sense to me. I was going to ask you, how do you uh, instill belief, which as you touched on is a hard thing to uh, kind of direct people with. But a lot of people watching this will be like, all right, well, let's see the average profile of a poker player, somewhat young, likes gaming, has come from a schooling system, maybe didn't go on the educational path. Maybe they did to some degree, but they didn't see a future academically. They haven't maybe had career successes or anything big in their life that's really held on to, unless it was early sports or early gaming where they've had success. So then they come into poker kind of with a bit of a chip on their shoulder. I'm going to go down a different path to everyone else. You know, I'm going to show people around me I'm smart. It's quite difficult sometimes to cultivate a belief in this avenue when you don't have any kind of thing results to back it up. So I think what you've what we've seen with you is you had this belief going in. So for you, it may be difficult to uh, extrapolate if you didn't have the belief because you had it going in. But I do think something's important. What you mentioned when you do lack confidence and don't have belief, taking small steps and it's almost like keeping the words that you make with yourself. You say you're going to go to the gym five times a week, you go five times a week. You say you get up at 6 a.m., you get up at 6 a.m. seven days in a row. And all of a sudden you start to realize I can say things to myself. I can make these small promises and I can back that up. You then stretch a little bit further and go, can I do this next thing? And you start showing to yourself with little things, small daily wins that I can do things I say I'm going to do. Over time, you build confidence for yourself and then Obviously, for your goal, was massive in terms of the belief there. But I'm thinking for other players who might not have that overarching belief, maybe start with small steps could be a, a gateway. Yeah, you build credibility with yourself when you do those things. And you can also think about how you're going to frame it. I mean, you maybe you don't have confidence that you're going to be the best poker player ever because you don't have results, but you can have confidence in that you're not going to give up. You know, mm -hmm. you can have confidence that I'm going to try my best. I mean, these things can sound kind of silly. But it's important because you have control over them, and they mm -hmm. can. They're just as meaningful. Like it can be, in a lot of ways, more inspiring to say, like, "Well, I might. I can't say that I'm going to be the best poker player, but I can say that I'm not going to give up." Mm. Yeah, it reminds me of, like the Rocky movies. For me, like the inspiring oh. stuff about it wasn't that he kept winning; it was that he just kept getting up. He got hit so many times so hard. I'm like, he's up again. It was like a wind that just some crawl off the floor. See, I think sometimes cultivating in ourselves the ability to be resilient, I'd call it resilience, to come back from hard times and to keep showing up over and over. I think we often underestimate how big of a skill that is to show up consistently when other people would quit. So yeah, if you've got nothing else to hold on to, be the guy who does a Rocky and drags himself up the floor again and again. <laughs> so for you, you've obviously had a very successful career, lots to look back on, which you could class as high points. For you, what is the most the thing you're most proud of if you look back on your poker career? So far. Yeah, um, I think hitting a million dollars in profit on Ignition Poker specifically was pretty significant. Even though I think at that point I'd already won a million dollars overall playing poker, it was just seeing it all in one graph <laughs> at one time mm -hmm. and just being like, I mean, holy shit, it's a million dollars. This is crazy. Um, I don't even think it needs further explanation. It was just kind of uh, a really significant thing.
Mm-hmm. Uh, the only other thing I would say beyond that too is just finding pretty significant success, especially over the past year playing on America's Card Room. Because with Ignition Poker, it sort of has a reputation for being a bit softer and it's a maximum of 1020, where for me playing on ACR and playing heads up against all the poker gods at 2550 and winning and so far and being able to play like even just being able to play 100 200 I, th- I think actually i was playing yeah i think i was playing there last night actually and it's always kind of like a surreal thing because i remembered even before i was playing poker i think i would have been like in high school like look like maybe play money or something and i think i was probably like i saw the jamie gold stuff in the main event like on espn and i was like looking on poker stars with like Daniel, I think this is when Daniel Negreanu was playing 100, 200, and he had this like personal like vendetta, like he's gonna play against all these online kids. This was in like 2010, to like prove that he still has it. Um, and but I just remember like opening up Poker Stars. This must have been before Black Friday because I could open up Poker Stars or whatever. And I'm like watching the lobbies and just watching Negreanu play 100, 200. And there's all the people. There's Molsi 47 and like Susie Smith and Altramaltis and all these like old school people that I don't even know what the hell they're doing anymore. Um, but to me, in my mind, like, wow, that that's nosebleeds like that is I can't even imagine sitting down for, you know, $20,000 and being in that position now is something where, you know, it's just kind of surreal, I guess. Yeah, I think as well, sometimes we don't take the time to uh, stop and look back and reflect how far we've come. I'm sure for you, you've just been in the trenches day after day and just step by step, you've got to where you are. And yeah, I think it's really good just to go right five years ago, six years ago, this was a pipe dream. I would have been amazed that this is possible. So yeah, sometimes it's good just to take that moment, to be proud of yourself for the journey you've come. There's still work to be done. There's new goals to achieve. But yeah, that kind of just moment to uh, acknowledge where you're, where you're at. Even doing this podcast is a bit of that for me too. Just like, all right, we'll just mark this moment in time here of something that I've done. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, we want this to be a, a showcase of your career and also share with the audience your journey. So glad it's been a, a fitting moment. So for you, uh, what would you say is the most important lesson poker has taught you? I know you've been learning, reflecting, you've obviously <laughs> got a very high point. Mm-hmm. What, is there any, anything that sticks out as a most important lesson? Well, I mean, just... I just, I don't know, just, just internalizing how hard it, that this has been. I mean, it's kind of funny when I juxtapose, you know, a certain level of success that I've enjoyed, but the experience of it is so difficult. I, I mean, I think the analogy or the metaphor they used of Rocky, pretty significant. I mean, I'm from Philadelphia, so that's where that movie took place. <laughs> There's this fucking Rocky statue out there. I'm like, he's a fictional character. Like it's a statue, but that's the significance. I mean, it resonated with people because it's like, yeah, this is it. You're just getting the shit beat out of you day after day after day. Um, but you just have to continue, keep going. And I guess it's just kind of, it's not like a, a lesson that you get taught in one day. It's just something that you learn through experience and iteration of just how important perseverance is, you know, passion and perseverance being grit and all that. Mm. So the lesson is to continually uh, put effort in when things are getting tough, to persevere in the face of hardships. And at the end of that, amazing things can happen. I think that's kind of the, I think often we'll, (laughs) yeah, hopefully, yeah. Because if you just persevere, just to persevere, you're a pretty pretty sick individual. Hopefully there's something (laughs) at the end of that path where it's like, it was worth it. It was worth that effort. And I think we've talked about grit already in terms of the ability to have passion and perseverance, but it's always towards 
an outcome, an objective that you're trying to get to. You might never get there, maybe you'll be striving, but it's the pursuit of a goal that is worth that extra, extra you're putting in. All right, mm -hmm. final question from me is, what is your definition of success? And has that changed as you've achieved more success in your poker career? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I feel like my definition of what is a lot of money has changed as I've, now that I'm married and living in Los Angeles, it's like, ooh, okay, so that's, uh, that's upgraded over time. Um, but for me, I think just the success of my poker career at the very least is kind of living at my, at my stretch point of always trying to um, progress as far as I can. I mentioned the whole Michael Jordan of online poker thing. That's sort of like a fun goal or whatever, but it's not really about whether or not I do that, especially because it's so unlikely to happen. It's more about like, am I living as if I'm doing that? And at the very least, if I'm putting in that type of effort and getting something out of it, I think that's basically how I would define success. It'd be kind of hard if I wasn't winning any money. I think that would kind of take away. I think I probably have to, there has to be some, some, some reward that is realized as well, but uh, probably some combination of those two. Mm. Did you define success the same way when you were struggling, when you were, let's say, on that downswing, breaking into two Ks? Would you have had a similar definition if I stopped you in freeze frame time then and asked you? Most likely, yeah, something pretty similar because I was just, at that point, you know, I wouldn't be thinking about, you know, being dominating six max. I was just trying to get to 1020, period. But that was just the vision that I had. It's always like, okay, I'm going to be working towards my stretch point. This is what makes a lot of sense for me. And it doesn't apply to everyone. I mean, I think I'm just more of a type A personality. So if you're not that, it's just not going to resonate with you as much. But, you know, I think life, it, you just kind of define what is meaningful for you. And that's ultimately what makes sense to me. Mm. When you say a stretch point, it makes me envision like a comfort zone in a circle and then stretching the outer edges of that comfort zone is those stretch marks. And if you pull it a bit further, it's going to stretch and go a bit further the next time. And yeah, so much growth on those kind of edges of where we feel uncomfortable, as you've talked about, even in your reflection of what was kind of the le lessons from poker, it's tough. There's challenges, there's, there's hard times, and this is kind of on that kind of stretch point. So uh, I really like for you how... Uh, clear you've been throughout your career in terms of this North Star and always pushing those edges, always trying to figure out what you need to do to grow and improve. And yeah, I think that's been a, a really good lesson. Hopefully those going away listening to this episode will reflect on that. Are they stretching themselves? Are they taking on challenges that lead them to grow? And also have they got that kind of North Star that they're aiming for to be a better version of themselves or whatever their own goals are. All right, great stuff. As for you, Rene, any stretch goals? At what, what's on the edges for you? Do you feel like you also um, define success as being on your limits or do you have a different definition of success for yourself? I think my definition of success is that you are able to live your day to day to on your terms. And basically you get to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do with whoever you want to do like that sort of sense of freedom. And that doesn't mean that I want to have time to do nothing. Right. It just means that you want to be able to do something because you want to do it, not necessarily because you have to. So if you manage to put yourself in the position that you can just do things because you are intrinsically motivated to do them, not because you have to, I think that would be my definition of success. What's your definition of success, Adam? I think I, I, don't, I don't, don't think I've ever asked you. I think mine's actually changed over the years, but it all circles down now to being happy day to day. Are you happy with what you're doing? Because I think often we will have success and happiness on a different kind of graph, and we will try to achieve success and achievement metrics, and then we'll figure out the whole happiness game. And my kind of whole kind of mindset now is we need to find happiness on the pursuits. They need to intertwine, and they need to be the same thing. So uh, 
yes, have goals, yes, have things you're pushing towards, but have enjoyment and happiness on that pursuit. If you wake up with a smile on your face and you're a cleaner and you enjoy cleaner floors, well done, you're a successful, successful version of yourself. Whether you're a poker player, whatever, it doesn't really matter. It's more like the enjoyment of what you're doing. Obviously, this doesn't mean every day you're blissfully happy. It doesn't mean you don't have challenges and hard times, but you're happy on the pursuit of what you're doing. I think that is the my personal definition. Yeah, I think I think I think you need to reach a certain level of success to to come to that realization. For example, when I was when I reached my own peak of my career, I remember the classic "huh, thought it would feel better" uh, type of type of feeling, right? <laughs> And that's kind of when you're more learned towards like indeed what you say that it's it's the pursuit, it's the things that you do day to day. If you manage to enjoy your day to day, that's in the end the goal. Like the present moment, the day to day, that's all there is. So if, if you can be happy with your day to day, that is that that is success. Um I wanted to ask you, Matt, you you already mentioned proudest moment. You mainly played on ignition in the beginning, you made a million. Then after that, you switched to playing a more global pool, ACR. It's generally considered, I would say, tougher. You can tell me if that's true, yes or no. What made you make that decision to jump in a tougher game? Well, I think one thing that happened is that ACR just had more traffic, you know, for higher stakes. I think PokerStars was kind of falling out of favor. It, I mean, even just simple things, like I don't think you can even deposit crypto um, on PokerStars, um, as far as I know. And so a lot of the games started dying there and transitioning over to America's card room. And they kind of took the baton and ran with it and started adding 20. I mean, they already had 2550, but they added 5100. And then more recently they added 100, 200. And seeing the opportunity to play again, play the highest stakes was really appealing to me, even though the game was significantly tougher. Um, I think just like I couldn't, if I would try to measure it, I would say, um, I think my like reg, to rec ratio is like 28 to one. So there's very, very, very few recreational players um, that you're playing against on ACR. So um, it's a tough game, but obviously when you're playing such a such high stakes, when they do play kind of a big uh, financial payoff. You mentioned tougher games. What makes, what are the characteristics of the players that play in these games that make the game tougher? Yeah, the players that are going to be playing at 2550 and above, um, overall, I'd say they're a lot more solid overall and make fewer big mistakes. I mean, one thing that I would find at Ignition 1020, um, in particular, just playing against other regs, is they'd sometimes make mistakes that no one should ever make. <laughs> like It's just so embarrassingly bad. And uh, hey, you know, maybe that's part of how you got to play the game. I did say you got to embarrass yourself sometimes, but there's a limit. Whereas at um, ACR, I would say that rarely happens, is that people have fewer explicit weaknesses for you to capitalize on and just kind of give free EV away a lot less frequently. So you have to really fight for it. Yeah, you, you, that's part of why, like, man, I really have to study so hard is like, you just if you're playing 2550, you know, three-handed across multiple tables, I mean, you know, there's a really low margin of error. And the type of people that are willing to play three-handed are always going to be the top regs. You're not going to be up against the bum hunters in that situation that are going to be a lot easier to exploit. And so it pushes you to study to take your game to the highest level that you can. Going forward, 
What are some of your goals in poker? What drives you and how do you stay motivated? And when I say actually stay motivated, it's probably better to ask, how do you regain motivation? Because just being motivated all the time, I don't think really it's really possible. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, I don't think it, I don't, it doesn't take a ton of conscious effort for me to get or be motivated. I think I'm very motivated to play poker because I'm so competitive and I enjoy this process. I mean, I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of just competing against the top competition at the highest levels. Um, so I think that's something that just kind of comes about sort of naturally for me in terms of, I don't even know what my, my goals would really be. I mean, I guess like a, technically, I guess my goal is to be a Michael Jordan of online poker. I don't know what the hell that means. <laughs> How would you measure something like so that? What, whatever, so whatever is like the next hurdle. Is there something, would you say there is something, if you look at in poker now, is there like a next step and is there, what, what would you need to improve upon yeah, to make that so next step? I think the problem is that because I live in the US, I can't play on GG poker. So I've been talking with my wife about uh, maybe, maybe we'd like to go to Vancouver for a little bit. And for me to be able to play in some of the nosebleed games that are being offered there. And I mean, in particular, like a little bit of FOMO, but there's like some pretty intriguing recreational players uh, playing there right now. So um, that would be interesting. But oh, I mean, overall, I feel like I've accomplished pretty much. And like if my poker career ended now, I would be extremely proud of everything that I did. Um, so, you know, anything that comes after this is just kind of uh, just bonus. but. The motivation is pretty intrinsic for me beyond that. What are you currently most curious slash excited for when it comes down to poker strategy? Let's say I want to do some strategy with you. I send you a message. What topic would I need to drop in the message for us to uh, to jump on a call? <laughs> um, I'm definitely studying a lot more heads up now because I'm playing a pretty significant amount of heads up, um, which just kind of comes with the territory when you're playing higher stakes, the pools are smaller, the people that are willing to risk rag battling, and just fewer and fewer people, especially if you're known as a winning player, there's fewer people that are going to want to play as much. So it seems like a lot of the time I'm playing against, more, I mean, more often than not kind of known players at 2550. And so that, you know, just kind of learning, not like I didn't already know heads up, but really getting into the specifics of heads up and taking a lot of the approach that I took to six max and kind of putting that into heads up of like, okay, how am I going to compose my ranges in all these different situations and how am I going to simplify things when possible? And so it's kind of, there's a level of it that's kind of like relearning and reapplying the same principles that I used before. And then kind of re kind of seeing how your principles apply to heads up instead of six max. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's going to hold up because it's an approach to how you would learn a game in general. So it's like, it's at the end of the day, it's like, all right, let's make a 25 flop subset or whatever, 49 flop subset and see how often we see betting. What, are, what boards, you know, have what favor, which sizings and how can I compose a polarized range and so on and so forth. And doing the hand to note thing and coming up with the, you know, theoretical ranges for all of these different spots. It's the same boring stuff just over and over again, but you get a lot of satisfaction at the end of it when you're playing and you get to see the fruit of, you know, your labor. Yeah. There's, there's, there's nothing more enjoyable than having worked on a certain strategy and you, you getting to a situation where like, this is it. This, this is, is exactly that spot. <laughs> and then it, you know, that it also works out perfectly. It's like, wow, what amazing. 
And that, yeah, that's what Nick Howard talked about in Poker Detox. I remember this specifically of like, let's study things that we're actually going to use. Like when you study something and then the next day or the next session, you actually use it. Whereas before he's like studying like, oh, what do you do with pocket threes in this like impossible river situation? That's what is so damn counterintuitive about it is that the thing that makes us interested in playing poker in the first place is that it's really complicated. It's unsolvable. You, may, you have to kind of make decisions with the, you know, incomplete information. But that's not the thing that's going to get you the most EV because it's just impossible. There's almost nothing you can do about it. But there's all of this other stuff that's more boring, almost too easy to study, but ultimately will add the most to your win rate if you decide to focus on it. Wise words. What the, would you like our audience for our audience to be the main takeaway of the conversation we had today? Well, I think that if you're someone that is playing at small stakes, let's say that might be a lot of the audience and wants to get better. I think if you've been stuck where you're at for a while, you're probably going to need to make some changes. And I think for most people, that's going to be investing in yourself in some way. For me, it worked out great to do a coaching for profit, but for whoever's listening, it might not be that. Maybe it could be, you know, doing run at once, doing upswing, whatever. It could be you know, getting a premium GTO wizard subscription and, you know, listening to some great webinars. <laughs> it could be shout out yeah. to the GTO yeah. wizard. Yeah. Um, it could be finding an individual coach that you really resonate with and booking some hours with them. But I think the point is like, you're going to need to probably get some help and be willing to invest in that. And and I'm sure like what's come across very clearly is just how super organized I am, how hard I'm working. And even though everyone's different, you're not going to copy and do the exact same things that I do. You could, but it's that you have to, it's probably going to take a ton of work and you're going to have to, on some level, accept that there's also going to be quite a lot of suffering. So um, I don't worry too much about discouraging people <laughs> by just telling you how much it's, you're going to be, it's going to be a struggle because if you're truly obsessed with poker, then that's not going to stop you. So um, I think if you're obsessed with poker, then. Um, I, I think, yeah, I I think it's a lot of your interpretation and the, yeah, it's like the interpretation of the struggles, right? You, you expected the struggles and when the struggles come, yeah, it's, you don't interpret it as like, oh, this is maybe poker is not for me. Right. It's just, yeah, this, this, this was bound to happen. This is what I have to overcome. So uh, I yeah. don't think it should be discouraging. It's just realizing that obstacles. And you, you know, don't even overcome it. It's just a part of the process from beginning. They show you, they, 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 they just show you what's next to learn, right? You have to learn a lot mm -hmm. of things. Everyone realized that you have to learn a lot of shit to get to where, where, where you are, Matt. So if, if there's an obstacle in the way, that's great because that's exactly the thing that apparently you have to learn. And when you overcome that, you, you know, you progress to the next level until you're at Matt's level. Exactly. And in terms of daily behavior, everyone is just going to ask themselves, what would Matt do? And then, you know, have that as like, you have Michael Jordan, now our listeners. I think someone Matt. in Poker Detox CFP did have that. I think that was one of their posters, like their little, you are talking about post-it notes or like, what would Marinelli do or something? No, but, but that, I, th I think that's great, right? Would, would Marinelli do that? No, he wouldn't do that. Okay, so I won't do that either. Right, that's kind of a, that's a smart way to do it. Yeah. Do you have any final words you would like to add to this conversation, Matt? Um, 
No, I don't think so. I mean, I really appreciate you guys having me. You have any final questions, Adam, or uh, can we let Matt go? If we squeezed enough knowledge out of him. We could squeeze a few more gems, but no, I'm very happy with the questions we've covered today. Thank you very much for your time, Matt. You've been a great guest. I'm sure the audience has got a lot of notes written down and lots of really actionable stuff they can work on. So we really appreciate you spending some hours with us today. Of course. Another bunch of wisdom bombs dropped on this podcast. Thank you very much, Matt. It was a pleasure talking to you. Adam, what are your main takeaways of this conversation? Yeah, it was a great conversation. We covered a lot from a mindset perspective, which was great for me to hear. And yeah, one of the things that was really dominant throughout the conversation was this strong identity that he created for himself and the belief that he could achieve it. So early in his career, he set the goal to be the best player in detox, now the best player in online six max. And it's this almost this like belief that I can get there. And he said something very powerful. You are who you choose to be. And I really like this because it comes down to the, we decide on the identity what we want to be. And then we reinforce that with the actions we have and the way we show up. So for him, what I got a real strong sense of is a innate belief that he could achieve the things he wanted to, and he was willing to back that up with action, which then reinforces the belief, which then makes more progress. So a really, really strong mindset in terms of his approaches. And then the other thing that kind of combines well with that overarching mindset is what he calls grit. And this is this kind of passion plus perseverance. So uh, if you set a big ambitious goal to achieve big things in life, you better be resilient. You better be able to tolerate stuff. You better be able to keep going. So for him, his grit is the one where it allows him to keep progressing and keep pushing past stuff. And we saw this in his career, particularly when he was shot taking 2K NL and he lost 52K over nine months. That's not a short span of time to lose money over. And he still kept going and still kept that belief and he persevered. So I think for him, doubling down on this ability to tolerate challenging times. I also asked him what was the biggest lesson you have learned from poker. And it was, again, perseverance to take on adversity and to push past that. So uh, I think when you combine those two together, this kind of perseverance and grit to get through stuff with this identity that I can achieve stuff and the belief systems, I think creates a really nice model for everything that comes from that. So yeah, I think super strong mindset, really liked all the stuff you shared. You also shared some vulnerable stuff about how painful things were as well. I think often from and outside, you can assume people have linear progress to the top and it's easy. It doesn't hurt. He said sometimes it was painful. He had to reflect. He mentioned crying in his rooms at times when he was on a big downswing. It gets tough sometimes, even with the kind of right approaches. So yeah, really, really happy with all the stuff we shared. I'm sure the audience walking away will have some really, really actionable things to take. So how about yourself, Renee, from a technical side? What were some things you picked up on? Yeah, he had an amazing mindset for sure. From a technical perspective, I basically, I think the main takeaway definitely for people to, to listen back is the structure he created in order to improve. I think that was the, the main thing. I usually teach something similar. It's like the feedback loop. I think it's also a concept in, you also mentioned Ray Dalio somewhere in the podcast. Uh, the I think the loop of continuous improvement or the process of continuous improvement, he calls it, I believe. And basically it comes down to he leak finds and everything that he does, I think is very important. He does deliberate, intentional, and he makes quantifiable. These are the three things that kept on coming back as well. And that's very important for him. So he leak finds. Again, he does it very deliberately because he goes through his database because he wants to improve on certain points because he knows if he improves on those points, he will start to make more money, be able to rise up the stakes and reach his goals, right? He makes those quantifiable. He compares his stats to, for example, PIO outputs, trying to play as optimal as possible. If you, for example found that your population might be overfolding a certain spot, you might want to aim for a number that's a bit higher than Pio. Um, then he basically, if he finds certain leaks, he goes into his process of strategy development that he mentioned. 
So I think he mentioned he runs a bunch of subsets, starts to look at the frequencies in the spot. Am I maybe missing certain frequencies? He will pick a sizing and start to pick his strategy that he wants to play. I think this is a very important point that people often overlook. They just review a hand in, for example, Wizard, and they just did I play this hand correctly. But they don't re have never really thought about how I will approach this spot from a strategical perspective. What's the strategy that I want to play? And from that baseline strategy, you know, you can still deviate, but it's good to have a baseline strategy, okay? And in strategy development, he emphasized the importance of trying to keep it simple so you can stay accurate. And when he looks at hand, he looks for certain heuristics he can use, right? This is something that comes back through our podcast. They don't just look at the solver for reviewing their hand. No, they look at, they try to understand why they look for certain heuristics that they can build their principles around approaching poker. Then he reviews before he plays, he reviews his strategical intentions. He sets an intention for the session and then again, deliberately starts to play. And his session then can be used to try to implement these focus points, right? Nothing is greater. I think he also mentioned that if you've worked on a certain strategy and you can apply it in game and you see it working, and then basically afterwards, he will review again, make it quantifiable, maybe at, at a certain stage, again, review his database to compare the numbers. But at least after every session, he reviews the hand. I think it's just every pot greater than six big blinds. I think I also gave some examples. Basically, if you found certain leaks, you can create filters and just review every spot uh, where you're basically leaking. And you review those. And in those, you will probably find some things that you're doing wrong, okay? And you could maybe write that down again. I think prioritization was also a very big key, right? It was frequency plus average pot size. That was kind of the formula that he used. And out of that rolls the importance of the leak. So for people who have a lot of leaks, um, I mean, me included, everyone included, to, and help, to help you prioritize the leak, frequency plus average pot size. That was kind of the formula that he used. And then basically it's repeat, right? People might be asking, yeah, well, at some point you're done. No, you're never done. This, this is just, this is the life that you live. You're just going to repeat this cycle. And obviously the leaks that you will be studying will become bigger and bigger, uh, smaller and smaller and smaller because you start with your biggest leaks and you narrow it down. And later also you become more nuanced. So don't think you really touch on that, but also with strategy creation, if you keep it simple in the beginning and you already went through all the spots and you play everything quite solidly, then afterwards you might add some nuance. Okay, to instead of just saying, okay, I study a two to nine high board, you can maybe add some nuance. One has a straight, one doesn't have a straight. One is nine, eight, deuce. The other one is nine, deuce, three. How does that change, right? But this is not something in the early stage that you want to go too deep down the rabbit hole in because you will make it very complicated for yourself. The first goal is to get good heuristic, good principles to approach all the spots. So a lot of knowledge. I'm sure we could talk on for hours and hours. Like actually we have with most guests. That's why the podcast, you know, they can take a little while. want to thank you. Adam for co-hosting this podcast for me. I want to thank Matt again for dropping all the wisdom. Remember, leave your main takeaways down below in the comments and get a chance to win a free month of GTO Wizard, sponsor of this pod. Shout out to GTO Wizard. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. Stay subscribed to the channel because we will be dropping more podcasts in the future. I have a couple of good guests lined up that I'm sure you guys will like as well. And I will see you guys in the next episode.